Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious well, allegations. Know, there's no spoilers here because it's the first episode from yeah. like 20 years ago. Yeah, it's kind and of I a think, spoiler for someone. Uh, no, well, some it's like, I think it's so old now, seven or eight, it's like Red Fox is in the fucking thing. <laughs> I watch, so I watched the first episode and I'm trying to get Red, online. Red Fox in the Game of Thrones. Yeah, he's like, Bad time I'm, I'm going whiskey. back, the dragon is going to the kitchen. Like, what are you talking about? So there's this part and there's this guy that's fucking this other guy. Sorry, I know it's on serious. It's okay. You don't have to apologize and, because they're gay. It's no, fine. No, but the guys, it's his it's his sister. Oh no, this is not a guy. That's a girl. No, it's the beginning yeah. and the first couple episodes. Yeah, and Cersei, I'm like, Cersei you and Jamie. are really trying to set this tone. We're like, okay, just here's the show that you're gonna be watching. This guy is fucking his sister. Yeah, and but I'm he like, really loves her. Uh, apparently. He's yeah, one of I mean, these good guys. Super just, really. Don't tell me that's a spoiler. This is the Zeitgeist. But so I looked it up. This is a very long way to get to this. So I was looking it up and I was looking up the Game of Thrones stuff on Twitter. Or on, um, you know, Google or whatever. <laughs> and so this thing comes up. There's a great quote from Snoo- uh, Snoop. What the hell is it? Snoop Lion, wherever he is now. He's, where he, he's just back to Snoop Dogg. Is he time. back to Snoop Dogg now? Where he is talking to an interviewer from the New York Post. And he's saying, I really love the Game of Thrones because it gives this gives me a great sense of what happened in the past. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing. And it's a total. And, oh. and the interviewer is like, wait, are you? Wait a second. Are you serious? <laughs> We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is uh, your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. Um, and I, I've said almost again. I don't even have almost in my notes, but it, things happen. So every once in a while, it's it's not quite right. I didn't show up last um, week. <laughs> yeah, that happened. Exactly. Uh, I'm Camille Sorry. Foster of Freethink. This is episode 68, recorded on August 9th, 2017. I am joined, as you can tell, uh, by a gentleman by the name of Michael Moynihan, national correspondent of HBO's Vice News Tonight. And this week, on, on some sort of clandestine mission, uh, someplace, it's supposedly a first world country in Europe, uh, this... Uh, Gentleman by the name of Matt Welch, editor at Large Reason Magazine, unable to join us because he can't find an internet connection of sufficiently where, where, high quality. I'm sorry, where is he? Now? I don't know. I don't know. What the, I mean, what who is can he keep doing? up? Who can keep up with Matt Welch? Matt Welch is like he doesn't look like a guy that you have to keep up with. He's yeah. like schlubby. He's just like an <laughs> angel's hat on. <laughs> like what bus station is he going to be in next? Yeah. Well. Anaheim. Well, we have Probably. we have we brought in we brought in a, a replacement for Matt. And, Yay! And perhaps perhaps he'll never return. Perhaps he'll never return. From I his cannot believe abroad. you let me back here. Yeah, yeah. Thaddeus Russell, host of the uh, Unregistered Podcast, uh, author of Renegade History of the United States, dear friend. He's working on a book, but it won't it won't be out for a while. We don't have a date yet. I don't know if he wants to talk about it or plug it. Um, but I'm delighted to have that here. That is here. Um, believe recording some things for his podcast. Perhaps recording some things with people we know. Um, that how the hell are you? And I guess I, I didn't ask how you are. One hand, it's inappropriate. I don't care, care about you. Um, how am I? I'm great. You didn't see. You said I didn't ask, and then you started going to a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you still didn't ask. Were you just pointing it out, or you didn't ask me? I don't know. Can you try not, not sure to yet. make him angry already? Can you, like, can you ask me? I'm not the one who makes him angry. I, well, I'm saying don't contribute. By yeah. the way, it's not it's neither of you in here that make him angry. There's other things that make him angry. Oh, good. <laughs> External factors. Um, uh, I'm I'm great 
Camille. I'm glad uh, to hear that, that is the most disingenuous <laughs> answer I've heard. I'm miserable and I'm full of hatred. And um, and uh, but there's a bottle of Glenlivet here that was sent to us by by someone very nice. Yeah, by by, by a dear friend of the show, uh, Spencer Smith, who has written a nice nice note. And Spencer has sent us booze in the past, uh, beers, if I'm not mistaken. Um, at least his note seems to indicate as much. What what can you say about this uh, this alcohol? This it's Glenlivet. It's it's it's, it's it's a good uh, 15 year Scotch. Um, um, in you know, it's like by, by good. Do you mean not great? No, it's great. I really like it. Um, and okay. it's it's a very reliable scotch. Okay, because the exchange that. that we had um, over Twitter, uh, as I was thanking him for this bottle, he said, uh, this. "This is uh, it's the least <laughs> I can do." <laughs> Um, to which this I responded, <laughs> step your step your game up, my nigga. Yeah. Step your Whoa. game up. What'd you no, say? it's that's, Stop it, that. Didn't we, we were just talking about this? Yeah. I said Jerry Seinfeld's thing, and it's like, this is the least I can do. It's like, well, could you do a little Come more? On. Come do on. A little more. Now, I, no, we appreciate it. two bottles. He, There's actually a bottle of Bombay as well. I didn't bring that out. What uh, the fuck? Are you hoarding? <laughs> yeah. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. You, you we don't have anything to mix it with. Um, but I, I, I could I, bring it. <laughs> but I, I should also mention um, our comrade in arms, uh, Anthony Fisher, who is also in the building, riding shotgun, prepared to be a, a killjoy extraordinaire, a veritable wet blanket and all around lame. On the wheels of steel. Yeah. Back here. Yeah. Anytime we're having fun, I suspect uh, Fisher will, will chime in and, and, and chat with us. And, and it is <laughs> interesting. This is, it. this is an interesting, <laughs> a re- interesting relationship that we're striking up here with Fisher, because Fisher will come in and essentially like executive producer direct the podcast, but it's not as though Fisher doesn't have a number of perspectives of merit on important issues of substance that, I mean, he could contribute to this conversation. But we're not going to let We just choose not to. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, Anthony, you are in the other room, in the uh, control room. <laughs> yeah, but, and but, I bet your opinions are amazing, but could you please keep them to yourself? See, the, see, the thing is, it's egalitarian <laughs> because I still get to hit the hooch, too. I still get yeah. some of the scotch. Yeah. Why so, does his yeah. mic sound better than mine? Uh, it's just because he's more interesting. I, I, I look like a gamer, though. You wouldn't you wouldn't like wearing this headset right now. Oh, you've got the headset. Yeah. He looks like he's about, yeah. he's about to play oh. uh, Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> <laughs> is that an actual game? I'll play that on, on the the internet there I don't, with I don't the think other, you could play it on the internet, Zelda no. yeah you're, you're, you're that's where everyone's like racist bit. right that's yeah. where they go in like no like on the online I never played this stuff but in the online video games mm. it's like the, like the shooting games and they all have the headsets on and there's everyone's like super racist. That's what Gamergate's about, right? Is I think so. It generally hasn't I don't been know. my experience but I, I also I've never don't played play games. video games with headsets um, anymore. Um, Thad, you You're were an adult. <laughs> well, not not because I'm an adult, but because I would get my ass kicked by like a 12 year old, yeah. and they let they won't shut up about yeah. it. Like they're they're on the headphones and they're talking, Super. and I'm not saying anything because I'm focusing on trying to beat their ass. Yeah, um, I used to be really really good at NBA 2K. I was like a ranked player, like 25th, 20 um 25th, 50th in the country, like somewhere in that range. Wait, what? Like in, quite in good. the country? What? Yeah, what? yeah, in the like country. in the in the on the PlayStation rankings. Yeah, for a while, um, for a series of years. So even, you're evening dominating the virtual world. Yeah, but I, but I was not any good at that. You, d- what was that? Is that a you people thing? That's that's clearly that's inappropriate. I'm actually say. not. I'm not very good at actual basketball. Um, yeah. But that you're here, you're doing interviews and such. Um, anything interesting? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, we have a special guest uh, looming in, I know. The, in the yeah stratosphere. Just, yeah, real quickly. I mean, I I don't want to name this person because she's going to be on my show and uh, it's a tease. Though. And I don't want to, you know. 
But, but just tease that there's someone. Let me. I'm gonna make Thad's pitch for him. He's somebody you respect a lot that you had a bit of a problem with. Yeah, him. it was a bizarre experience where there is a someone. It's really hard to talk about this without identifying this person. But anyway, it's a person who I've whose work I've loved for a long, long time. Whose work really resembles mine in many, many fundamental ways. And I brought her on the show because of that. And she didn't know who I was though. Hmm. And I think assumed some things about me that weren't true but anyway so I was in it was this exercise in saying I love your work and here's what I think you have said and then her basically denying it and also just refusing to agree with anything I said no matter what it was so it was constant devil's advocacy and you know claiming that things are more nuanced when we clearly were in agreement on something and her refusing to take positions that I know she's taken publicly so it was Hmm. Very frustrating and very weird and also makes me despair for ever having conversations, I suppose, with a particular population that I used to belong to. Hmm. Academics. Mm-hmm. I, de- I thought maybe he was talking about something else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what, what I'm that, sorry that you that, that experience. Where, who I, else have I belonged to? Trans people. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I literally have no idea. Can you, I guess you, can you be a trans person? Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. What do you of course mean? you can. You but if you're, tr- if you're, you can be whatever you want, Camille. I guess you can, because that's what are you talking about. But no, I mean, we're cutting this you whole could thing be transracial. Out. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah can, we get to, can we get to the person who's like really patient? Yeah, really? Thanks. See, this, this is what I'm talking about with the wet blanket yeah. uh, business. There's a great deal going on this week. Uh, a lot of foreign policy uh, stuff happening. Uh, miasma, perhaps uh, North Korea and all kinds of other stuff. But before we get there, and before we get to the to the other. Uh, what is it? Diversity flaps uh, that are taking place and outrage about television shows. Uh, we were going to talk some criminal justice reform. There's some important re- anniversaries and stuff. And one of the most requested guests uh, on this podcast uh, of people who have not been on the show yet, because people request you uh, occasionally like that. Occasionally. Wow. Um, People ask when I'm quitting. <laughs> a this lot. is also, also true. Um, is, uh, is, is a gentleman by, gentleman by the name of uh, Radley Balco, who's a Washington, Washington Post columnist, author of Rise of the Warrior Cop, uh, which is a, a very good book, mm-hmm. um, and uh, author of the forthcoming book, Dr. Death and the Country Dentist, uh, February 2018, people. You can uh, pre-order that on, on Kindle or something, I'm sure. Uh, Radley, thank you so much for joining us, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you for a while um, and I, I wanted to talk about a bunch of different things with you. Um, I think the last time your name has been mentioned on this podcast in the past uh, in connection with various things, usually heaping praise on you uh, for writing something I think penetrating and interesting. Yeah. But the last time I mentioned him, there was a, a, a subtle dig. Um, oh, did and, you? Yeah, yeah. And, and it wasn't it wasn't like sincere, but we'll we'll sort of get to that. Oh, good. Um, but but Radley, I mean, there is actually a great deal taking place in the sort of universe of criminal justice reform. Um, certainly, uh, the Trump administration has been quite active in probably three areas, um, largely with respect to executive actions. Um, and there's been a lot of sort of corporate deregulation. Um, a, a fair amount of sort of environmental deregulation. And the third place is criminal justice um, reforms or unreforms or rolling back. Um, and it seems that the Trump administration is pretty intent on unraveling uh, whatever the, the Obama administration has accomplished in this particular area. So I wonder if you could maybe start by giving us your sense of, of how, how we're doing. <laughs> and and how the hell we got here? 
Sure. Um, well, I mean, if we go back to the end of the Obama administration, you know, there were a lot of sort of summaries of what exactly he did for criminal justice reform. Or, and, you know, I think that in a lot of ways uh, it was a uh, it was it was actually a historic administration in the sense that for the first time ever, we had a president and even an attorney general saying, you know, that uh, things had gone too far. You know, it was time to kind of swing the pendulum back the other way. Um, and, you know, to have a president, you know, say we have too many people in prison, that the drug laws are, are, are too harsh, that sentences are too long, um, even to admit these or well, have an attorney general admit the, uh, the kind of inherent unfairness and civil, some civil asset forfeitures, um, you know, that is a, a historic thing. Um, that said, uh, most of what the Obama administration was largely did was largely symbolic. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the restrictions on the 1033 program, which is the program where the Pentagon gives away military equipment to police departments across the country, you know, it was significant because it was the first time anyone had ever, any president had ever, uh, narrowed the program or put any restrictions on it. Uh, but you know, it was a, a tiny, you know, dent in the problem. Same with asset forfeiture. They, um, what the holder, what holder did at DOJ was to put limits on uh, a process called adoption. It's kind of complicated, but basically there's some states that have passed uh, pretty good forfeiture laws, preventing police from taking your stuff without ever having to charge you with a crime. And the holder administration, and what was happening was the, the police departments in those states would call up the DEA and say, hey, you know, I've got this investigation going. I think there's going to be a forfeiture. Can you send somebody? And it would be sort of nominally then a federal investigation governed by federal rules. And it was a way of kind of circumventing the state legislature. Older administration put a limit on those, which, you know, was a good thing. It was actually kind of a, a federalist uh, policy that they implemented. Um, but again, it only, you know, it only affected it less than 5% of total federal forfeitures. Um, so just across the board, I mean, sentencing reform, I think, is, you know, the Holder memo uh, instructed federal prosecutors to not, you know, to, to not always charge the most severe crime, you know, they could possibly charge under the evidence. Um, so what the Trump administration does has done is basically roll all of that back. Um, and so to the extent that, you know, we had for the first time ever an administration willing to admit there's a problem, willing to take at least some steps toward, you know, fixing the problem or, or uh, at least addressing it, uh, the Trump administration has kind of rolled all that back. Um, I think, you know, that's um, troubling. Uh, I think the probably the far more kind of practical uh, impact of the Trump administration is going to be kind of the way they uh, is is, uh, is going to be a lot harder to measure. And that's uh, how Trump's sort of rhetoric, uh, how Sessions sort of promised to not, you know, to roll back DOJ civil rights investigations of police departments, how all that might embolden sort of police officers on the ground when it comes to, you know, everything from um, uh, profiling to brutality, to use of force, to just, you know, just doing stuff because they think they're empowered to, uh, you know, when the president himself is sort of tacitly encouraging police brutality, uh, you know, that's going to have an effect on the ground. Um, that's going to be harder to measure though. So, you know, I, I think so far it's pretty bad. Um, it's about as bad as we expected. Uh, but fortunately, I think most criminal justice reform is happening at the state and local level. 
Uh, and there isn't really a whole lot the federal government can do about that. Even on immigration, which, you know, is a federal issue, Sessions uh, promised to withhold funding from sanctuary cities pro- almost certainly isn't going to stand up in court. Right. Um, and uh, so even on immigration, I think, you know, you're still going to see policy mostly made at the local level, which is probably how it should be. Hmm. Well, I mean, with respect to the Obama administration and what they were able to accomplish sort of beyond the the difference in rhetoric, are you are you at all in retrospect disappointed with them for not doing more legislatively? It certainly seemed like for a moment there you had like the Rand Paul, Cory Booker alliance. You actually had um, folks on both sides of the aisle that seem interested um, in these issues. And I thought for a while there, you might actually see some sort of reform, but never materialized. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it was hugely disappointing. I mean, I, I, I sort of thought, uh, I thought Obama was probably the best chance of any president we've had in a long time to, to get sort of, you know, serious, uh, substantive reform. I also, you know, was pretty certain it wasn't going to happen, um, just because of the, the, politics of it all. Uh, but, you know, he, he didn't, and Obama never, never, um, you know, never expended any substantial amount of political capital on these issues. Uh, what he did was sort of the stuff he could do. It was stuff that was pretty popular and had been popular for a long time before he undertook it. Um, again, it was still sort of historic and that no president had done it before, but, sure. um, but it was, yeah, I mean, it was hugely disappointing and, you know, there's a disappointment enough to go all around. I mean, Rand Paul has been good on, uh, voting rights, for example, uh, when it comes to like felons, I I actually put up a post praising Paul early in the Republican primary because he went to Kentucky. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It wasn't Kentucky, but he went to Iowa, uh, to a Republican state convention in Iowa, which I would imagine, you know, is probably pretty old and pretty white, uh, and basically made the case for giving voting rights to, uh, convicted felons convicted of nonviolent crimes, restoring their voting rights. That's not a position that you take when you're pandering to Republicans in Iowa. You know, that's a position you take when you're trying to lead on an issue. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, as soon as Trump took over, he voted for uh, to confirm, you know, the most probably punitive attorney general on criminal justice we've had in since probably Ed Meese. Uh, so, you know, I think both sides uh, are, well, the reformers on kind of both sides of the aisle have been, have been, you know, when push comes to shove and it comes to actually sort of expending a little bit of political capital, I think they both come up short. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that, that has been in the news a lot um, in recent years, um, and certainly this week, uh, as I guess the president's commission has been, been talking about this, um, and hopefully we will we'll, remember to come back around to forensic science because I wanted to talk to you about that, too. Um, but the president um, has the president's commission has been looking at the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I know this week they were there was a report released and they were insisting, um, among other things, that he declare a national emergency. And he didn't quite do that, um, but he did talk pretty forcefully uh, about getting tough on crime and uh, investing in the police and. Uh, that was the way he was going to uh, to to ensure that we address this problem. Um, there have been a lot of recommendations. Um, a lot of the recommendations that I've heard um, don't inspire a great deal of confidence um, in investments in in treatment programs, which I mean, maybe maybe those things are effective. But from what I can tell, a lot of them are not. Um, and obviously locking more people up, uh, I guess, regulations on 
legitimate opioid prescription pills. Um, I wonder what your what your take is on the the sort of development of the opioid epidemic, how we got to here and sort of the very odd, the very odd reality of a situation where the rate of use doesn't seem to have gone up dramatically um, in terms of percentages, but the number of overdoses like has um, shot up. Are the numbers there trustworthy from your standpoint? And do they, do they indicate anything in particular to you? So I think there's a lot going on uh, in this issue. Um, I I think the government uh, at various points has, has, um, gotten involved in ways in which it didn't really know what it was doing. Um, you know, in the two th- early 2000s, when a lot of these drugs came onto the market, um, basically the, the agency that was put in charge of making, of sort of preventing abuse and, and preventing overdoses was the DEA. Uh, so you had drug cops that were basically making medical policy. Uh, and that was a really bad idea from the start. Um, and so what happened was you had legitimate sort of pain specialists, people who specialized in palliative care, um, were, you know, the, these drugs were new. They were trying to sort of feel them out, figure out how to use them in the proper way. There are people who suffer from chronic pain or finding some relief from very, very high doses of opioids, doses that were high enough to, to kill someone who, who hadn't built up a tolerance. However, it did, it did work for some of these people. And there's, it's still, uh, sort of debated whether that kind of long-term idose therapy works, but it, at least, you know, for some people it was working at the time. Uh, the DEA then came in, started cracking down state, uh, police agencies started cracking down. They started literally sending SWAT teams in to raid doctor's offices, uh, simply because a doctor was, pres- was writing more prescriptions for these drugs than the DEA thought was legitimate. Then, so in other words, you know, not, not only was the DEA sort of making medical policy, any doctor that violated that policy, you know, risked criminal prosecution in, in decades, literally decades in prison. And so what that did was it chased all of these sort of conscientious, uh, you know, well-intended um, doctors with a lot of experience out of palliative care, out of particularly for, for uh, chronic pain patients, as opposed to say, you know, terminal patients who have a lot of pain, um, they can still, still get these drugs for the most part. Um, but you chased all the sort of conscientious doctors out of that field entirely, but there is still this huge demand uh, for the, from pain patients for these drugs. Uh, there just weren't any uh, conscientious doctors to treat them. And so you created this market for pill mills, these kind of like strip mall shops with unscrupulous doctors who basically, you know, were just writing scripts in exchange for the, uh, the Medicare, Medicaid payments. Um, and, you know, so you created a system that, 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 you know, there was no sort of gatekeeper in the medical community, no responsible gatekeeper when it came to, uh, distributing these drugs. Uh, even that said, there, there, there was actually just a study that uh, Maya Salovitz wrote about a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. that found that the idea of the accidental addict, the, the, you know, the guy who hurts his back and gets some opioids and becomes addicted and then, you know, ends up, you know, in the gutter, <laughs> uh, shooting heroin, um, is largely sort of a myth. It, it's the percentage of people who have, who have overdosed on opioids who started as pain patients is, is it's a, I think it, it's, it's a range, but it's somewhere between a fraction of 1% to, I think it was like five or 6%, yeah, I've seen that uh, as well. which is, which is, which is kind of bucks the conventional wisdom on this. Um, what we are seeing is a lot of, 
you know, uh, kids uh, getting addicted after swiping, you know, the oxy out of their parents' medicine cabinet or people loaning it to friends who then get addicted. Um, so you're seeing a lot more of it on the market. Um, as for the, you know, the overdose deaths themselves, if you talk to people in the medical examiner community uh, and you talk to them sort of candidly, they'll tell you that it's really, really difficult to uh, to explicitly sort of conclude that somebody died of a drug overdose. What you can find, what you can do is you can find there's a lot of a given drug in the system and, you know, they had a heart attack or they had some sort of condition consistent with, you know, taking too much of that drug. Problem is in a lot of these cases, these people have taken other drugs, have taken alcohol. Um, and in some cases, you know, uh, with some of these, uh, uh, high, uh, the people, chronic pain patients who are taking high doses of these drugs who could do it, you know, without serious side effects. Right. Uh, there are a lot more of them. And so anytime one of them would die, you know, of a heart attack that may be unrelated to the drugs they were taking, you know, when the medical examiner does the autopsy, they find high doses of drugs in the system. And so they conclude that it's an overdose. No, but you um, build up that tolerance over time. So you right. can, and, you and can the simple fact is we have, I, I mean, this is right. the same, we have more people taking these drugs, you know, across the population. So anytime somebody dies a premature death and they have that drug in their system, it's going to be attributable to that drug, regardless of whether or not that drug actually caused the death. Uh, that said, there, there is a problem. I'm not trying to say there isn't a problem. Uh, I just think we have to sort of be careful when, when we're sort of throwing out the, uh, the figures, because uh, it's very easy to, to, to overstate the problem and then you overcorrect and, you know, you get a lot of uh, side effects from that as well, or unintended consequences from that. Sure. Hey, I mean, I think part, part of the issue there is, is you know, you, you talk about a state of emergency and to, to the extent this is an emergency, you can do something hysterically like very quickly without much thought. And that may or may not be a good thing. Like, for example, cracking down on prescription pills and pushing people towards heroin, which is likely to be uh, a more dangerous substance for folks to take because we don't necessarily know what's in it when it's a street drug. Hey, Radley. So I, I'm curious, when did this DEA crackdown on these drugs begin? Uh, it was about in the early 2000s. Um, Jacob Solom actually wrote about a lot of them in uh, in Reason. I, I wrote a lot about several of these prosecutions as well. And you know, the the actual number of doctors who went to prison was small, but it's but the way the DEA would go about it is, you know, they they would make a huge deal about it. They would put out press releases, they would hold press conferences, they would sort of hold these people up as, um, you know, they basically put their heads on pikes, uh, you know, in the medical community. It was the intent of these prosecutions was to scare people away from prescribing these drugs. Um, so and it, it definitely had an effect. I mean, if you talk to chronic pain patients, um, it's getting, you know, increasingly difficult for them to find doctors who will, uh, will treat them. Uh, and the ones who do, you know, they're, they're basically being they're forced to be treated as addicts because the doctors have to protect themselves. They have to give them urine tests regularly. They have to constantly monitor them. And, you know, we're already seeing the effects of this. I mean, we're already seeing uh, there are several states now where all the medications you take are in an online database that are that's accessible by every police agency in the country, which, you know, can't imagine how that might be abused. Right. Um, there are uh, prosecutors now who are charging, you know, heroin 
if you, if you give your friend heroin and your friend overdoses and dies, you're going to, you can be charged with murder basically, or manslaughter, some sort of homicide. Um, we've been, you know, I, I've always said the, for all the thought of criminal justice reform, we're always sort of one crisis or one sort of easily exploitable high profile crime away from, you know, making all the mistakes we, we made before all over again. And it really seems to be what's happening in the opioid uh, crisis. So I've been studying the war on drugs and the war on crime, the, the historical origins of them. And and, you know, there's a lot of research on this that shows that it they arose organically and in in, meaning that there was, a, you know, considerable push by ordinary people in poor communities across the country for tougher laws, for minim, mandatory minimums. Is the, Do you see that with this crackdown on opioids? Did Were there was there an outcry among, you know, local community people to crack down on this? Uh, I think you, you see a little bit of that. Um, you know, I, I, my own research into the sort of historical origins of drug war, I mean, I think, I think you're right. I mean, particularly in the 80s, I think you saw um, a lot of, uh, you know, black communities, Latino communities right. were kind of leading the charge for some of these uh, laws. And, and it's kind of a known to untold history there. Um, I would also argue, though, that I think if you go back to kind of the Nixon administration, um, you know, that's where you first start to see, and actually even before that in the Johnson administration, you see kind of the bully pulpit being used, uh, to, you know, really push for these reforms. And it was actually Johnson who started this and then Nixon kind of took it over and, and expanded it, but started the idea of sort of dangling federal money and fed in, in front of police agencies and states. And then once they kind of got hooked on it, you know, making that money contingent on passing the, the kind of tough on crime policies that the, the administrations wanted. Um, so, yeah, but I, I, you know, I think, you know, Ryan Grimm's book, uh, um, This Is Your Country on Drugs, you know, uh, does a great job of tracing kind of some of this history, too, in the 80s, where and the Reagan administration really cracked down on pot uh, just because it was a culture war issue. It's basically, you know, hippie kicking. Um, but you know, in cracking down on pot, you sort of made it very easy for drug importers and drug kingpins to switch to another drug uh, that was uh, had a much higher profit margin. Uh, and he, he basically, I think, convincingly argues that it was the Reagan administration's war on pot that gave us the crack epidemic. Um, and that's where you really start to see, you know, the, the communities that were most affected by the crack epidemic sort of clamoring for, for tougher laws and tougher sentences. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's I think that story is under told is, is not told. But I think even that story, you know, there are still sort of um, plenty of uh, uh, political figures that uh, can share the blame. Yeah, I just I'm wondering about motivation. Right. I mean, what's the what's in it for the Bush administration and then the Obama administration in doing this? By the way, didn't it escalate the crackdown under Obama in recent years? The crackdown on on, on opioids by the DEA. Um, yeah, well, the I think the DEA raids um, uh, were less prominent, or the, the kind of DEA targeting of doctors. But you definitely saw increased pressure on pharmaceutical companies, on um, wholesalers, on pharmacies. So they kind of went after the the white collar end um, and, you know, took a, a pretty hard line approach in terms of, uh, you know, the DEA, you know, not only can they target doctors and pharmacies and wholesalers and manufacturers, but they can, they can basically, they put a limit on how much total, on the total amount of certain controlled drugs that can be, um, 
uh, basically sold or produced over the course of a year. So for example, I take Adderall, I take it with a prescription. Um, I think, I think know, every, everyone in this room <laughs> takes Adderall as well. I, I yeah. actually have a bottle of Adderall sitting on this table. Like, no, <laughs> no lie. So, so what you'll, what I, what you'll notice if you, if you take it is that in October, November, it starts becoming uh, increasingly difficult to find. You have to go to two, three, four pharmacies before you find a place where you can fill your prescription. And the reason why is the DEA puts a an annual limit on the total amount of Adderall that can be manufactured. I did not know that. Uh, and so, you know, that's a really dumb kind of blanket approach <laughs> because it, it doesn't stop, you know, college students from you know, taking it, um, from loaning it to one another, it just controls the total amount that's out there. Huh. Um, but that's what they do with, um, with these opioids as well. I, I, I just, I, I can't quite explain why, you know, the Obama administration, Eric Holder, Loretta, Loretta Lynch, whoever it was would do this unless they thought it would win them votes in the heartland. Well, I don't know if it's about winning votes. I think it's about not losing votes. I mean, I think if it's, it's, it's very easy to be portrayed as soft on crime. I, you know, I think they were constantly guarding against mm. that. And, you know, they were they were attacked for it rel rel relentlessly anyway. I mean, the whole Obama cops thing is is it's mind blowing. Um, you know, the I don't know how many times I saw the meme out there that Obama never attended a police officer's funeral. And the reality is, he, you know, attended <laughs> oh, yeah. lots of them. Um, so, you know, I think they were. And I'm not trying to defend them. I mean, they did, you know, they, they yes, you weren't are, any better than the Bush administration. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, they in particular were particularly uh, susceptible to the, you know, soft on crime, you know, uh, no friend of cops kind of uh, attacks. And so I think, you know, where they made some progress and maybe uh, passed some some mostly symbolic but but also important policies, I think on in other areas they, you know, they probably – uh, went out of their way to make sure it looked like they were, you know, getting tough on on uh, certain drugs and certain crimes in order to compensate. Yeah, yeah. Well, th th there's another sort of area I wanted to to go to quickly, Radley. If we can hold you for a little bit more, I mean, mm -hmm. today's August 9th, uh, August 9th, twenty fourteen was the uh, was the day when Mike Brown was shot in Ferguson, and and obviously that touched off. Um, a lot of uh, of activism around criminal justice issues, um, and uh, I, I'm wondering about you know uh, something I've talked a fair amount about on this podcast and in, in other places is the way that the conversation about criminal justice in this country has become fundamentally. Um, a conversation about racial justice. Uh, actually, just this past weekend, I went to a, a movie screening. Um, I went to see Crown Heights, um, which is a film about a Trinidadian gentleman who lived in, uh, unsurprisingly, Crown Heights, although I don't think Crown Heights gets name checked in the film at all. Um, but he goes to prison for 21 years and he goes to prison for a crime he did not commit. Uh, in fact, you know, over the course of the duration of this 21 year period that he's in jail, like there's sort of more evidence that comes to comes out that demonstrates his innocence. And, you know, whether it's I don't know that it's the racism of the cops. It's not it's not obvious that that's that that is the case. But the bureaucratic uh I don't know what to call it, but in either case, he doesn't get out of jail. Um, and there's a panel afterwards and the panel is having this conversation and they keep talking about racial justice and and race and and issues of race and talking about it in that in that very narrow, specific way. Um, and at some point I like get up and I ask a question, which is somewhat unusual because I, I got a special invitation to come to the screening and I hope we're still friends like <laughs> after this. 
Um, but I, but I stood up and I asked the question about um, approaching issues like this, uh, where you actually hope to achieve some sort of reform and making these fundamentally questions of whether or not um, sort of the, the appropriate percentage of black people relative to their share of the population usually is, is the way these conversations happen, are being arrested, whether or not black people are coming in for sort of special, unique punishment. Um, and I mean, the challenge that I had to them and that I have in general is I'm not certain that most of those conversations actually lend themselves to a meaningful conversation about reform and the right. kinds of reforms that are likely to be useful. What you get instead is what well, we should what we should do is what you did in Baltimore. You should get more black cops and getting more black cops obviously fixes all of the problems, except no. Um, or you should do some sort of racial training or have the feds take over or have the feds take over, which mm -hmm. all of these things could be useful. Or you or you could do what they've done in Missouri, um, like starting to track the number of black people that you're pulling over, for example, and reporting on that on an annual basis. I don't know if these things are particularly useful. And in fact, it's not. I don't know. I know for a fact they're not. That being said, and, and I'll stop my my thing and because I want to get your perspective on this, uh, Riley. But, you know, there are things that have been accomplished as a consequence of of these issues becoming more prominent. There's been a conversation about militarization, even though we, we maybe haven't um, gotten a lot done. But we do have, you know, these uh, the reporting being done now by The Washington Post, the publication you're you're associated with. But we're actually counting. We're tracking the number of police shootings. This is useful. This is meaningful. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that a lot else has been done. And I, I worry that there are plenty of people that are all too happy to crusade on these issues without necessarily making a hell of a lot of progress. Can I really quickly just add to this question I think you're posing to Radley? Which there's, is, there's, not, there's not really a question. I, I'm, I'm inviting him to comment, but I was setting it up with some context. I just, I just wanted, I mean, I, I think underneath what you're saying there, Camille, is you're asking, I believe, it's, a, it's about causation. There's a causal analysis at the base of this discourse about racism mm -hmm. and criminal justice. That in that the claim is that racism is the primary or major, sometimes only cause of mass incarceration and these police deaths. Uh -huh. So, I mean, to Radley, what I'm dying to know is how much how much do you agree with that? I mean, how much do you how much weight do you give to racism to the to the secret beliefs of cops as uh, as a cause of incarceration and and uh, brutality? So I think there are two, two, two problem or two kind of ways to classify this problem, and they 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 exist together. There are uh, problems within the criminal justice system that exist independent of race. I think mass incarceration exists independent of race. I think police brutality. I think police um, uh, kind of a trigger happy nature of cops or their their willingness to resort to force more force more quickly. Bad training militarization. I mean, these are all problems that exist sort of independent of race in the criminal justice system. And I think they deserve sort of a discussion, a race neutral discussion. That said, um, I think race is still a problem in the criminal justice system. And I want to elaborate more on this, but, and to the, ex but before I get there, I just want to say to the extent that it is all of those problems I just talked about, um, you know, are worse 
for people of color than they are for white people. Um, and, you know, I know this is a, a libertarians uh, have historically been reluctant to sort of talk about uh, race in these terms and sort of collective terms. But I mean, if if we know that uh, a lot of these I mean, we know that a lot of these institutions in the, within the criminal justice system were built and were sort of honed and, and evolved during a time when we all acknowledged that racism was rampant in this country, right? During, mm-hmm. you know, the basically Jim Crow era and before, I mean, Reconstruction, pre-Civil War, Reconstruction, Jim Crow era. Uh, if that's when all of these institutions sort of built and when they evolved and, uh, and when they've been sort of honed, and those are still kind of primarily the institutions that run society, um, I don't think it's, you know, it hasn't been that long to but, think we've 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 managed to purge kind of the uh, the demons from all of those systems. And you know the, the example I, I would give the strongest example I give would be you know St. Louis County and and Ferguson, which uh, you know I as far as Michael Brown, you know I think that I, I think that that as I have a lot of problems with the prosecutor in that case, but I think he made the right call on that, on that particular instance. There just wasn't evidence, and I think there were a lot of false narratives about what, what happened in that particular um, altercation. However, that's not really what people were protesting in Ferguson. Um, you know, what people were protesting in Ferguson was the kind of uh, predatory nature in which local governments, through their police officers, were uh, preying on people, uh, particularly low-income people, particularly people of color. And the reason why low-income people and people of color were disproportionately impacted by that is because of our sort of racial racist history. I mean, um, what happened in St. Louis County is as white people fled the suburbs of St. Louis and moved into the county, black people, upper-income black people sort of followed. White people didn't want to live with them, so they would move out further west into the suburbs, and they would start a new town. And in Missouri, it was very easy to to incorporate to start a new town. And so they would just move a mile over, and then the black people would move, and the white people would move again. And so what you ended up getting is this enormous concentration of these tiny little municipalities all crammed into this county. Well, the the you you have all of the, all of these. In fact, I went there, and, and I mean, there I think there's over 90 municipalities within St. Louis County. Each has almost all of them have their own police department, their own city council. You know, they they have their own city budgets, which have to be funded. Uh, and the way they make money, you know, in St. Louis County is most of the county income comes from a sales tax. Well, if you are a poor county, uh, and more likely a black county, um, you're going to get you're not going to get nearly as much money from sales tax as the wealthier counties, which means you're going to be more reliant on fines and court fees to basically fill your city coffers to pay your police department. Uh, and so the more, you know, the more, <laughs> the, the poorer your county, uh, the more likely it is that the police have been specifically instructed to shake you down by, you know, giving you fines because your pants are too low or because, I mean, there, I've, I've found one example where one of these little towns was, they'd installed a manual red light switch where they could make the light turn red. And so they would wait until there were five or six cars in the intersection, you know, crossing the intersection during a green light and they'd flick it to red Mm -hmm. and another cop would be down the road and pull them all over. And I mean, I interviewed, you know, black people in St. Louis County who, who had protested a couple who hadn't, but basically they said, you know, that's, Michael Brown was just sort of the fuse. I mean, this was bubbling yeah, up for years. Sorry. These people were getting, I mean, there are people who had five, six, seven arrest warrants out on them for petty infractions because they couldn't pay the fines. 
Um, and I, you know, this is an example, I think, and this is where, this is where you can have uh, a criminal justice system that is racist, even if none of the individual actors within that system, you know, have the slightest bit of racism in them, um, which, you know, we all have a little bit in us. But, um, you know, and to make matters worse, you know, you can't be a police officer if you have speak any for, sort of speak for yourself, system. Radley. I, I don't have any of that in me. Uh, any any racism I have is universally directed at all races. I, I, okay. I, I find That's it all true. the whole construct uh, I find repugnant. Um, but, but, you know, but the, I mean, to make matters worse, so the, I mean, there was some, there was one instance where a mayor, you know, put a, a note in with the paycheck of, the, of his police department saying that if they wanted to get their full paycheck, they had to, you know, write more citations yeah, and issue more fines. Tickets. Yeah. And, and the police department, the police officers in the, the poor areas, you have to, you know, you have to have a, a college or a, a high school degree and you can't have any warrants against you to be a police officer. Most, so most of the police officers were pulled from the suburbs, which means, you know, you've got, basically white, all white, mostly white police forces in black counties who have been, or black cities who have been instructed specifically to shake. I mean, they're all, the only reason they exist is to shake people down and serious crimes are investigated by the county police. So that's just one example. But I, I I mean, I, I think, I I, I think that's taking a bunch of money away from citizens in this sort of way is, is gross and awful. It's deplorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and folks should read your piece from September 3rd, 2014. Um, how municipal um, municipalities in St. Louis County, Missouri profit from poverty is yep. the uh, title of that. Yep. Go find it and read it. Yep. Um, it is worth Great reading. Great work. Very um, important. It, it, super important. Yep. Um, the, 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 the challenge I have Radley, and I, I don't disagree with the history in terms of sort of the, the bad things that have happened that have helped to, to create um, circumstances that often result in a disproportionate impact on certain Namely, populations. in this case, poverty, right? I mean, what you're talking about, Radley, is this is all a function of the relative poverty of African-Americans, right? right. That's why they depend on these sources of income. Am I right? Well, but it's, but it, but it's also, I mean, the whole system was created by white people not wanting to live with black people. I mean, that's why you have all these municipalities in the first place and, and you know, why they, you have so many different city coffers that need to be filled. I mean, that is what drove this, you know, from the start. I mean, I think that's a, I think that's an interesting point, but when it comes right down to it, um, I mean, maybe that particular historical detail is clarifying and it helps people understand why it's this way, but the injustice of having punishingly, essentially a punishingly high tax on citizens, one that makes it difficult for them to go to work, to actually maintain and hold down a job, which has them being, I mean, when you document this woman being shuttled from um, municipality to municipality to go from court to court to have her situation resolved, that she can't afford to pay these fines. I mean, this is just, it is a human tragedy. And my concern about these issues oftentimes is it's not so much the people like lack the historical context. It's that once it becomes uh, a racial issue, like there's all sorts of stuff that gets bound up in it. And, you know, I think the Ferguson, the events of Ferguson are, are interesting and are worth unpacking at at length. And and I don't want to hold you for too much longer, but it's, I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, people across black people across America um, sort of took note of this and the dominant narrative there, I mean, from a national standpoint, certainly didn't seem like, you know, this is about municipalities taking advantage of us. No. I mean, you were hearing yeah. on a regular basis stuff about, you know, this happens every day. You know, they're out here killing us. Right. 
there are, there are books like Wes Lowry's book, um, They Can't Kill Us All. I mean, there is, I think, a, well, yeah, a fair the, amount of hyperbole see, and and yeah. very specific sort of claims about the active racism of police, which I think perhaps maybe gets well, in the right, way. Let me, of the, let me give you another on. example. Uh, I think it was last year, maybe the year before. Um, Senator Tim Scott, conservative Republican from South Carolina, on the floor of the U.S. Senate, he gave a, a, a really moving talk where he, he talked about how he's been, I can't remember how many times, but some ungodly number of times he's been pulled over, did nothing wrong. Cop harassed him. He had to, once he showed him, you know, his ID and that he was a U.S. Senator, you know, they inevitably would apologize and let him go. But he talks about this idea that he's a black man who driving a nice car. And in there, there are parts of the country where that immediately puts him under suspicion. It means he has to be pulled. It means he's going to get pulled over more often than, you know, a white person driving the same car. This is not a, a guy who sort of, you know, uh, profits off of racial justice, the racial justice movement. This isn't a demagogue. You know, this is a conservative Republican senator from South Carolina. I don't think he was making these stories up for attention. Um, you know, I, I can tell you, story, my, my wife is, is from Columbia. I mean, every member of her immediate family has some story, including her, uh, about getting pulled over. She got pulled over coming out to see me when we were dating. She was driving from New York and got pulled her over because she was basically, she was, you know, Latino driving in a rental car and like had searched her stuff, went through every piece of her luggage, every bit of her clothing, you know, didn't believe her when she said she was a journalist and she was going to see her boyfriend who was a journalist. I mean, I think that, you know, I don't think, no, I don't think every cop out there is, you know, secretly, you know, attending clan meetings, but I do think that <laughs> there are, I hope not. I, I think there are preconceptions that police officers have. I think, I mean, look, just the other day in Washington, DC of all places, right. There's a, a police officer who was wearing a, a caught wearing a t-shirt in court, uh, and there were others like him. Apparently it's all part of this particular police group, but you know, that, uh, had a grim reaper on it. And this is a group that patrolled a, a area DC that's like 95% black. The police group itself is all white and the shirt had used sort of symbols that, you know, arguably have white supremacist, uh, origins. I don't know. I've seen but, but, arguments but, that it's just some sort of weird font they were using. Yeah. But in any case, um, I think there is a kind of police culture. I mean, I've written about the police culture of t-shirts. There's a lot of, you know, um, uh, racially sort of suspect language that's that, you know, and, yeah, you know, there's police been... officers do have a morbid sense of humor like anybody else in, yeah. in a profession that sort of, um, uh, high stakes, but it's more pronounced. It's, it's, you know, I, I, I think it's a mistake to talk, sort of talk about the problem with the criminal justice system only with respect to race or to own, only within a racial framework. But I also think it's a mistake to leave that out of the discussion entirely. Um, and I think, you know, as libertarians, I think we, we tend to do the latter because we, we don't like the notion of, you know, race is kind of a collective uh, um, concept and, and it's, you know, it's, it kind of defies our notions of individuality. But, you know, if the government is treating people sort of collectively or if, individual government entities are treating people collectively. Um, that's a problem too. And I think it's a problem that, that it's worth addressing sort of in a, within a libertarian framework. I think, I think it's, uh, we're not doing, uh, ourselves any favors by sort of ignoring that, I guess. Yeah. I think, I think my, my issue is actually a bit different than that. Um, my issue is I, I care deeply about these issues. 
Um, and it's really important to me that we make some progress on them and that we actually uh, not only have people like you um, covering this in thoughtful, detailed, important ways and writing important stuff about it, um, but that we don't get stuck in the in the tar pit that is American racial politics. And the truth of the matter is that there are plenty of people um, on both sides that that effectively get distracted by this bright, shiny object. And the only thing that they are able to talk about is the, the intense racism of the police. And we've certainly seen some proposals of reform that are useful um, but there's also been a lot of other things that are likely distractions. Uh, last well, word to you. I'm, I'm going to shut up now and then we'll let you go. Um, sure. Well, I, I just think I mean, I think I think talking about it in terms of of and I, I, you know, structural racism is a term that I think a lot of people sort of vaguely of the right run away from. But I think it's actually a useful way of looking at these issues, because. I mean, the, the example of St. Louis County is an example of, of structural racism. It's the same thing in Baltimore. I mean, in Baltimore. Is a good. I mean, you you brought this up. I mean, the Baltimore Police Department has a lot of black cops, mm -hmm. and yet if you read the DOJ report, there's still a lot of like, you know, just the the, the problems within the police department are disproportionately directed to black people. Uh -huh. um, and so, you know, that tells you that it's not about individual cops being racist. It's it's something bigger than that. And so, I think you can talk about it in in, in ways that you can say, you know, this is a system that was designed in a certain era or with certain goals. Um, that you can populate that system with whoever you want, uh, and it's still going to be a problem, and it's going to have disproportionate impacts on some communities. Um, and you know, again, you can have that without second guessing the motives of any individual police officer or you know individual prosecutor, individual judge. Um, so you know, I think we can talk about it the way I you know I do agree with you. I think it 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 can turn a lot of people off. I will say, you know, the black lives matter. If you look at the reforms that they proposed on, on the, on their, um, uh, website or their, I guess their policy groups website. Um, a lot of them are, are race neutral. In fact, I, I wrote about this. I mean, there's some about racial training for cops, uh -huh. but a lot of the, their proposals would save, probably save lives of all races would probably benefit. All people would, would actually benefit cops in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I know the rhetoric from Black Lives Matter, um, you know, can be heated sometimes and, and more sort of from, you know, when you see sort of protests and from uh, some of the leaders of the movement. But the actual policy proposals that they put forth, I think, you know, would be productive. Most of them, I don't agree with all of them, but most of them I think would be productive, you know, uh, in, a, in a race neutral way. Are you talking about the project, what was it called? Project 100. There is Dre Mackison's group. Yeah. Project Zero. Project Zero. Sorry. Yes. Project yeah, Zero. You. Yeah. Thank it's been a while since I wrote about it. Again. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think Camille agrees too. That yeah, no, DeRay's, much DeRay's that group actually has, has a fair yeah. amount of stuff. And I, I will tease here that DeRay and I have been going back and forth about the possibility of having a conversation um, so that may happen in the uh, in the coming days. Yeah, but we I think we and in, very much endorse. Much yeah, of this I, I endorse yes. I endorse a fair Everyone amount of that read stuff. That. The the truth, however, is that most people are unfamiliar with that aspect of the Black Lives Matter True. conversation. Right. That's and the for problem. the and for the most part, I mean, I think the 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 critical fundamental piece that resonates with most folks who would say that they're supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, may or may not conform with actual facts about the reality of police shootings. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think that's true. Maybe, maybe any, that doesn't matter. Though, right. The, the kind of people on the ground, people carrying signs aren't always in tune with sort of where the leadership of the movement is. I mean, I, 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 I kind of cringe when I see sort of people finding, you know, 
groups of like eight people at a protest chanting, what was it? The thing about pigs in a blanket or whatever. <laughs> uh, sure. You know, that's, yeah. that, that's not, that's not the entire movement, right? No. That's, that's a few people that got caught on camera at a protest. Um, sure. I mean, you saw that with the tea party movement too, you know, they would find media would find sort of the most, you know, extreme members of a tea party protest and, and sort of portray them as if that was the entire movement. Yeah. Well, Riley, I want to keep talking to you about this and other things. Um, so hopefully we'll get to do this again um, and, and perhaps we'll, we'll structure it a little differently so that we can spend even more time uh, getting into some of this stuff. But sure. thank you Love so much for, for hanging out. I really appreciate it. The name of your upcoming book again? Uh, it's called Dr. Death and the Country Dentist. It's a um, to look at kind of the history of death investigations in America and the corner system um, kind of through the lens of uh, a couple of cases in Mississippi. Yeah. And I said we'd talk about forensic science, but we didn't. But I have mentioned your piece uh, before. Um, I believe the title of that is When Obama Wouldn't Fight for Science. Um, and if people haven't read that, they should go read it immediately. Um, also a very high quality um, you too, sir, are very high quality. Thanks so much, Radley. Appreciate it, bro. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it, guys. All right. Thanks, Radley. Moynihan, you, you didn't say anything. You were just no, creating space, so you just don't want to... <laughs> no, uh, create some space. I mean, I did something that I think more people in media should do. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, no, I mean, these aren't my issues, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I read about them. I know about them in some sense, but yeah. it doesn't do anyone any favors if people, I mean, look, one of the most amazing things about a career, a, a part of a career in cable news in the sense that I never, I was never a contributor anywhere, but when I would be on cable, mm. I'd be a talking head. One of the things that really shocked me about it is that I was, when I was a lot younger, I was just excited to be on. I was like, oh, it's cool. You'll be on TV. It'll be fun. And I remember taking the train up once. And it was the first time I really realized it uh, from DC when I was living in DC to New York to do a show in New York. And I got to Penn Station and um, they still hadn't told me what I was going to be talking about. <laughs> and we've all, we've all been there. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we've all been there. Yep. And I can't remember what it was. It was like fucking quantitative easing or something. <laughs> and I was like, well, I know a bit about this, enough to fill four minutes of a stupid hit. And that's when I said, um, you know, I'm never, and I did actually say this at one point, and I stuck to it, is that I'm never going to talk, unless it was on something like Red Eye, where it was like jokey and the rest of it. Are gonna go on a show where somebody's gonna tell me what I'm talking about while I'm in the green room. Yeah, and it's like there, there's a big problem that way with media. I mean, it's great. It's because because it fertilizes so much, so many media websites, whether it's from the left or the right. It's so easy to be like media matters or newsbusters or one of those fucking stupid things <laughs> yeah. because it's full and you know every time you turn the tv on it's like you know quad screen the whole tv is clotted with morons talking about things they don't know anything about and it's always the case and you know thad knows this is you know written uh, your book and and you know camille you have very specialized interests and things when they talk about something you know about that's mm -hmm. when you realize the whole thing's a fraud right <laughs> yeah it's like okay okay this is the thing that i know a ton about and you're like who are these who are these people why is eric bowling talking about venezuela he doesn't know where venezuela. how did i know that name was going to come up at some point well because we're going to talk about his dick sometime right <laughs> that was kind of seinfeldian yeah. michael too with the who are these people who are, who are these people yeah yeah no, I mean, it is like, when we talk about Eric Bowling's dick. Uh, actually, yeah, the funny thing is, I, the way to talk about that was I saw right before I came in that the guy who reported that story of Huffington Post, mm -hmm. very solidly reported, by the way, um, uh, is now being sued personally 
not Fox News, uh, not uh, Huffington Post, being sued personally by Eric Bowling for $50 million in damages. And from what I know of this story going a few years back, that's a bad move on Eric Bowling's part and suing a journalist for $50 million. Mm. He had 14 sources on this story. Um, and as somebody who, who has heard this story, um, I and referred to it obliquely on the podcast once. Uh, you can go back and find it somewhere. I don't know what episode it was on. Did you guys ever see any firsthand evidence of this kind of stuff in the Fox building? Never did. Yes. Okay. That's all. I'll say. Yeah, I'm just I curious. Never, I have no I, idea. I never yeah. did. Um, but yeah. I also, I mean, I was, I was a weird outsider. I mean, when I was there, I was actually Fisher was there as well as a producer on on the Independence, greatest show in the history of cable television. Um, yeah. yeah. Which may be a qualified endorsement, but it was a yeah. it was a great show. Um, <laughs> I never saw any anything of the sort. And in, in fact, I've had like pretty. I, I had very surface level but decent relationships with most of the people in the building where they were polite to me and we had conversations. The only person who ever sort of weirded me out, um, or at least, you know, you couldn't really just talk to was Bill, Bill O'Reilly. Like I ride the elevator down with him. He might be polite, but he might be grumpy and I don't know. So without naming names, Michael, what did you see? Well, here's the thing. I should actually actually qualify and say, um, see, (laughs) (laughs) I heard a lot. And saw, well, I heard it from in the building when I was in the building oh. uh, and saw, 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 I mean, put it this way, the Eric Bowling story wasn't a surprise to me. Hmm. And as a matter of fact, I knew that there were a bunch of journalists um, at other publications that had been sniffing around that story for some time and couldn't get people to go on the record and talk about yeah. it. And I don't know what happened. Maybe it was the kind of avalanche of other stories, but, um, you know, people I really trust really trust, uh, who were close, very close to this, um, had been talking about it, uh, before he was somebody who was on, a, on, a, you know, the five or whatever. The hell yeah. he's on well, the, well, hopefully he's a specialist not. in sending ball picks or whatever oh the show that he's God. on now. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you know, it's like, <laughs> is that the new thing? Ball picks? Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Probably. Is that, that is no one's thing. I'm I mean, it's, sure. it's, if it's anyone's well, thing, you haven't it's tried this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully he maintains his, uh, his particular positioning on this issue and decides not to sue the entire fifth column podcast, but only one Michael Moynihan. That's where the money shit. is. I mean, good God. Yeah. That's what's it, what's it, what's it going to take from is. me? <laughs> my, my, you know, Muammar Gaddafi keychains. I, 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 yeah. I don't have anything. Please, yeah. And I don't, I don't have a perspective on this particular story. You know, I, I say love wins. That's what I say. It's, I mean, that's maybe nice. you're that's trying, nice. but, yeah. but what if you want to make someone love you by sending them a picture of your dick? Well, the, this is, you know, I think I told you, I think I told you this earlier. There's a difference between it being um, something that you didn't ask for unsolicited. Totally. Yeah. And unwelcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you, the thing you is, you may in fact yeah. be very pleased <laughs> when it arrives. And when you check your phone later, uh, you might really be very, funny. it's a like, question of I, consent. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you yes. might consent. Yeah, well, I'm not going to. I like I like this idea though, this of, of somebody being like <laughs> having a conversation with somebody and like and taking the temperature and be like, you know, what? I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm just going <laughs> to drop this into the conversation, you know, beneath the you know emoji of a rainbow. <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I never. No, it's I've, the, I've, it's I've the never emoji had of the eyes looking sideways. I, somebody would have is. to say to me, <laughs> "Sir, could you send me a picture of your penis for me to ever do something like that?" Well, yes, I can. I mean, but who like? Seriously, like, I don't even think of, like, the culture of Fox and the culture of cable news. And I guess if you look at Eric Bowling, it looks like a guy who would probably do something like that. But I'm just <laughs> trying to figure out the mentality of somebody who's just like, yeah. you know what? And by the way, the reports 
maybe going a little beyond the Huffington Post report, but the reports are that these came out of nowhere. That just kind of like manna from heaven. It was like, <laughs> oh my God, I just got it. Let me just, who, what was that ding? I'm going to open up my holy Christ. I know that guy. He's the one with the shirt unbuttoned that's on the, there's a specialist. <laughs> I mean, what, it's just so bizarre that somebody's in that, in the, that mindset. I guess it's not that bizarre. And the reason I say that is because I'm actually listening right now to John Ronson's, um, Audiobook. He just did a specific audiobook hmm. uh, called The Butterfly Effect about this company that basically rejiggered the f economics of porn hmm. and and how you make money in porn today. And one of the things is like really specialized. You know, you get you, you get people to do things for you. You say like, I'll give you ten grand, and this is what I want to happen. And you should listen to this one great story about a guy who wanted uh, like three porn stars to burn his stamp collection. Uh, I think he was Norwegian and paid like 20 grand for it. And it's this bizarre story. And these people who do this and like, I guess the weird fetishes that are out there just beyond it's beyond the Derek Bowens of the world. <laughs> someone told me that Ronson is reporting that there's a crisis of porn in the Navy, that the Navy is cracking down on the, the widespread use of porn. And they're saying that, you know, our submarines are going to sink if you guys are watching porn instead of driving the ship. Yeah. And I just thought there was going to be, something. but that it's, it's actually a real problem for them. Like is it everyone in, is, is it watching, in that? Is it in that I, I, pocket? I've only heard this. I've just listened to the first two episodes, I, and John sounds, John is a friend, and I really like him, and it's really good. Well, that doesn't listen. sound credible. I don't know. I'm just reporting. Um, this is a hearsay. I'm just reporting. <laughs> I'm just reporting. I'm reporting. Reporting. reporting, reporting, I'm reporting what you guys do here, right? You just talk shit about I mean, what people much. might have said. Pretty, pretty much. much. Uh, speaking of dick pics, real quickly, just side note, but it's kind of interesting. Have you guys like, seen? Have like you seen is the Grand Master of Dick Pics? Have you seen the movie about Anthony Weiner? The documentary. It's great. It is I one have, of the best documentaries seen I've seen great. in a long time. Everyone should go see it right away. But it got, kind of goes to this, you know, question that Michael yeah. raised is like, what? Who? Who and it's like an illness. who would do this and why? And actually, it's the best explanation, or it's the best sort of exploration. Yeah, you should of watch that. it, and, and because yeah. that's right, there's a great uh, sort of exploration, kind of subtle explanation of it, too. But the amazing thing about it is the two things I thought about that film is that why does this guy do this? Gets caught, does it again. Obviously, you could be, be you're a politician, you're being set up, your wife is Huma, and yet, yet random people. And then it turns out after that film that he does it to like a 16 year old girl or mm -hmm. something in New yeah. Jersey. That's the accusation. I don't know if it's true. But so all of that. But the other thing that I thought was really amazing about it was who lets cameras into their house I know. that way? Especially when you are leading, you know, you're Hillary Clinton's right hand person it's and you're so running crazy. for Congress and like, what are you doing? Anthony that was even crazier Huma? than sending dick pics to random people. To but me. hey, apparently, apparently hats Huma, off was, to them. Huma was not into that, apparently. Like, you this, can tell the, in the film. The guy that was the, the, yeah. the filmmaker was a former staffer of Wieners who kind of oh. like had handshake deals and just kept shooting and shooting and shooting. And Huma really never had the opportunity to but, say, what the hell are we doing? But I think we should encourage every politician in this country to follow their example. Example. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm into it. Uh, yeah, it's a great movie. I mean, oh, send yeah. send pictures of no. your <laughs> let film crews into your bedroom, into oh, your kitchen, yeah. into your bathroom. Yeah, yeah, I'm, follow you around everywhere and have yeah. you talk constantly. Totally, and, and you fantastic. realize what type of like sociopath wants exactly. to become a politician. Like yeah. nobody should want to do that, and I, don't I trust anybody to, that does. I wanted to become a politician for a while. Yeah, but you didn't. I did not. Exactly. No, but there are certain people who are not in this room right now who mm -hmm. are insisting that I run for office. Still. 
Oh, Matt? Yeah. Yeah, he's like literally on, in a gutter in like Bulgaria right now. <laughs> Again, not somebody who should be trusting. For, every time I'm asking, I'm like, where are you? And he's like, there's no internet here. And I'm like, you're in Europe. The, where in Europe is there no? I'm like, okay, you're at like a holiday resort in Montenegro. He's going to be the Paul Manafort of the Camille <laughs> Foster <laughs> campaign. House raided today, by the way. House raided House raided yeah. by the FBI, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. right, yes. Yeah, yes. someone someone sent a, a tweet um, at me and a bunch of other people saying, what's this about? And, and I, I mean, what do I work for the FBI? Do I have some secret knowledge of what's taking place here? I don't yeah. know. I don't know what the hell it's about. Um, Paul Manafort, if you uh, are unfamiliar, is a shady motherfucker. Yeah, that was, that <laughs> um, and, was and he was um, and he was before any of the um, Russia Trump collusion uh, rumors. Um, he was because of his involvement uh, in the Ukraine situation and yeah. the fact that there appeared to be multiple books that were being kept and sure. off the books payments that he was getting um, to participate uh, in, in all manner of grossness. Um, and the fact of the matter is the Trump campaign had scoundrels like that working for it, which is an yeah. indictment of sure. the Trump campaign. I mean, he, sure. did, he did fire him, but yeah. But yeah, so shady motherfucker for sure, because he worked for Putin. That's I think everyone agrees on that, right? That, yeah. That's a, that's a thing that happened. But also a stupid motherfucker if the FBI actually found anything in his house. I mean, by now, At he should point. have cleared yeah. the whole thing out. So this that, that's why I'm sort of, I think it's just weird. Yeah. Again, y yet another Trump thing that is just very fishy. It's, it's Everything all, about it is fishy. It's also strange. But again, perpetual like we, perpetual investigations, film crews in everyone's house. Um, mm -hmm. yes. I think we should just universalize yes. this. The, one of the things that, that makes me, I mean, when we talked about this before, it's the issues of substance that we often end up ignoring as a consequence of some of these peripheral. Yeah. Think? issues like the uh, mm. like the investigation and one of those issues of substance um, or at least a category of the issues of substance is the insanity from a foreign policy standpoint that we find ourselves um, mm. juggling right now. We have a, a crisis in Venezuela, which is not the fault of the United States. There's there was no hesitation there where I'm qualifying it and kind of sort of suggesting it. There are a lot of people. Who think there it are is. people who think it is. <laughs> we, we should we should people, we should perhaps help them. Yeah. Well, no, there's no helping them, but we'll, we'll talk about it. But the, Okay. North By Korean. The way, I, I will say actually, and uh -huh. you know, get shit from whoever on Twitter or something for you know bringing up another book that you should read but there's a really good book about this um uh by a guy named brian nelson i think he's uh, was maybe a duke or something but it, it's published by nation books and he is called the silence and the scorpion i don't know if i've mentioned it here before but he hmm. went um and and look the nation nation books published it he was he, he, my, my old friend carl bromley published it and i think they you know, knew what they were getting and they didn't get what they were getting, if that makes any sense. I mean, they no. like, you know, he was like, he was the academic that said, I'm going to go down to investigate the 2002 mm. coup. And then he came out and he was like, oh, that, no, that makes sense. It's like, it was actually <laughs> a uprising of people and people in the army, et cetera. And doesn't vindicate uh, the U.S. response, which was just mostly ham-handed, right? I mean, they're like, we recognize Pedro Camara. Like, oh, like, no, he's a bad guy. Okay, we don't recognize him anymore. We recognize... So but, it was just like the, a lot of, you know, cack-handed responses that you would expect from Washington. But it's a very, very smart, super detailed book about how that unfolded. But it also... The, the purpose of this stuff, mostly, is not to advance a particular narrative on, on foreign policy. You know, I mean, these things go hand in hand, but it's typically what it is, is to say, is to vindicate the regime itself. It's not like the bigger thing. It's oh, got to sure. it's got to fit into this narrative about American foreign policy. They're less interested in that because 
you know, Venezuela was the, the latest stop on the tour of the political pilgrim. And there were yeah. so many people that yet again got mm -hmm. rooked by the system that promised the world. And it was so obvious from the very beginning was going to end up in tears and bloodshed. And it's exactly what happened. But I mean, you sent me something today from Slavoj Žižek, which who I don't even yes. pay attention to because basically <laughs> well, there's, there's good reason. I mean, this is one of the most ridiculous. Well, that's what he does. I mean, he's, he's the that's why I mean, he'll say like, I like Donald Trump, you know, like, of course, because I <laughs> Need, he needs to be outrageous, and he has a picture of Stalin over his bed, etc. And people are forgetting about Zizek a little bit, so he's like, "I'm going to come and." I mean, he said the same thing about about um, about like the Russian Revolution. It was the problem was that Lenin wasn't hard enough. It's always yeah. the problem was so and so wasn't hard enough. You know when Michael describes you know like anti-war people or whatever as uh, drooling, dirty slobs. You know, slobos. No, not, it's it's not, Zizek. I don't think I ever it, said it about. I said it about a lot of people. <laughs> Not, not specifically about anti-war people. Some of them who might be anti -war. But I'm just saying, you actually are totally describing... Like, that is... That's yeah, him. that's what I think. He, look, he looks like a guy that, that you found in a Slovenian yeah. uh, bus station. I mean, literally just like slob, yeah. you know, drooling yeah. kind of weirdo. So, but yeah, he doesn't count. I mean, there are some people that... Um, and I've mentioned this before, too, is that, you know... What's his name? Um, I read the piece in The Nation after Chavez died and said, well, he wasn't, he wasn't hardcore enough. Uh, the guy who's in, I believe he's at NYU. I can't remember. There's a whole bunch of these people. Oh, uh, Grandin? Uh, Greg, yeah, Greg Grandin, Grandin yeah. who said they was, the, the, the Chavismo wasn't hard enough oh, yeah. right. about this stuff. Oh, sure. And it's like, you know, I mean, the one problem I have with this is that is that in the kind of broader sense of people talking about, and you see it already. I see it on Twitter and you see people talking about this. It wasn't actually it wasn't real socialism. socialism. You know, yeah. it's, it's like, no, it clock, like clockwork. Well, oh, he, my he God. He took all of that money and he tried to he tried to set up these worker owned shops making T-shirts. He tried to diversify the economy. Yeah. I mean, look, it's I one of those things where. I state run a rape <laughs> stance. Literally, when I was in yeah. I was just like, what is that? And like, it's a state run a rape stand. I was like, why is the government in the rape business? That just seems, <laughs> I mean, you don't have to be a libertarian for that. You're like, what is that? But but the thing that about it is that you always have a have a, have a huge um, amount of uh, of information, an amount of uh, a sort of record uh, of people talking about this stuff in real time. So when somebody says it, it wasn't actually existing so socialism, well, you know, it wasn't real socialism. They had never been tried, etc. I don't know why so many people who say they're trying it never actually end up trying it because no that actually would suggest to me that it doesn't work if every time you try it, the people don't actually end up trying it. Mm -hmm. But the real thing is that you you look back. And everyone seemed to think it was real socialism at the time, right? So why is Tariq Ali, you know, writing these books about how amazing it was? And why is uh, Oliver Stone, who made this incredibly funny, um, unintentionally funny film about Chavez, why are all these people just just so excited and clapping and, you know, in the, in the front of the, of the you know, uh, there's a great video of Maduro, too. Because um, now the narrative is, you know, like that that uh, Lenin was betrayed by Stalin. This is the new one is that Chavez was betray betrayed by Maduro because it wasn't as bad before. <laughs> and what, what we're, we're seeing now is like, it's a great clip of uh, Danny Glover on stage dancing right, yeah. with Maduro. I've seen it, yeah. And it's like, guys, they, they stop saying it's, it, you know, they didn't really try it there because everyone seemed to think that they did. Mm -hmm. But uh, the disaster in Venezuela, I had a friend of mine in Venezuela who's very well position to say such a thing was saying like, you know, the big deal now is that the discontent in the army is spreading. Hmm. And that, and that, you know, cause the thing is, is who do you, when you, you know, how to avoid a, a, a coup, always make sure the army's fed, 
Always make sure the army's paid. But what happens when they are still the first people to get the paychecks and the first people to get the state, you know, subsidized food, et cetera. But what happens when all of it runs out? Yeah. Right. And that's yeah. where the position they're at now. Yeah, when bonus, it's bonuses so are, news, are rolls of toilet paper. Yeah, exactly. Is, I mean, it's a, it's a tiny little thing of, uh, of, of crest, you know, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not a good there's something. There's something we, we didn't talk about earlier, um, but that I, I was uh, reading a bit about this week and, and just. I, I don't know, just trying to digest it. But the the fact that the Venezuelan sovereign debt, like up to sort of June, July, yeah. uh, was still being acquired by folks like Goldman Sachs and, sure. and, and various other folks, actually. Yeah. Um, and in this particular case, it's not even so much the debt of the Venezuelan government. It is actually debt of the Venezuela, the state owned oil company. Yeah. Um, and it's worth noting that, yes, the Venezuelans have destroyed their currency. There is a rampant hyperinflation that has been going on there for a very long time. That's but of course, this five, debt years, yeah. is not denominated in Venezuelan Bolivars, yeah. Bolivars. Yeah. Bolivar? Yeah. Bolivars. Well, I mean, the Bolivars, I mean, one of the most yeah. amazing stories about what, how crazy Venezuela is, is that when you go to the country, you don't get, if you don't bring enough cash you're absolutely screwed. Because what happens is then the bank machines at the time um, worked, but they give it out in the official rate. And nobody uses the official yeah. rate. And nobody. I mean, yeah, the, di and the difference is astonishing. So I actually did run out of money for a variety of reasons. Well, this um, is the time funny. that you were selling your body. In well, Venezuela. yeah, I was trying to. Not very effective. I think I was trying to bribe my way out of something. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. But and I had to use my ATM card and get these complete, completely worthless. But, they, but you come in and the people that are actually stamping your passport will offer you to sell you black market notes and everything. But one of the most amazing stories about this, and um, it's really, I think it was Sorry, I think there's like a squirrel in my mouth or something. There is an amazing story that was told by the Wall Street Journal, but a few people who is paying attention to Venezuela knew this. Is there's a website called Dollar Today with one L, and it has like two million followers on Twitter, and basically they control the the currency rates uh, on the black market, and nobody pays to the official one. So if you go to Dollar Today, it's a very opposition website, very very anti-Chavista, but it's pretty interesting, pretty, you know, well put together and everybody in Venezuela reads it. It is run from a break room in Alabama at a Home Depot. And that is like, is such a great encapsulation of the tragedy of modern Venezuela. The guy, very smart guy, he's basically c controlling the currency on the black market because he had to leave and he ended up in Alabama for various reasons. And the job that he got was, was working on the floor at Home Depot and he goes in between breaks um, to, to update the website. It's totally fascinating. And the country is a complete and utter mess. Yeah. yeah. And, and then there's also the staggering crime rates and the murder rates. Am I right? Staggering. Like, staggering. Way up there. So I don't actually have a total explanation for that. I mean, do you have one? I mean, because that could be a function of poverty, but it seems there's got to be something beyond poverty because there's lots of poor countries with lower murder rates. Sure. So, I don't know. It, yeah. I, I mean, have no it's, idea, it's Honduras. I mean, like, look, right. there's, it is the murder capital of the world. Mm. I mean, th this they stopped giving out the crime numbers. So when I was in Venezuela, I, I went to um, the morgue. There's only one morgue in Caracas, and it is one of the most foul places I've ever been. There's only one morgue there. And so there were journalists that were going after 2000, 
I think 10 or 11, they stopped releasing the numbers and they would go to the morgue and literally count the bodies. And they would talk to people on the way out and say, how did your son die? And it was always invariably somebody who got shot. And it, and it was a really foul smelling, horrible place. But at the time there was 29 million people in Venezuela and the estimates were anywhere from 20 to 25,000 murders. That was at a time in the United States. Annually. Where, annually. Wow. There were three, there were 300. I remember looking that year, 320, 330 million people in America mm -hmm. and 14,000 murders. Right. And we're the gun yep. crazy capital. And they were beating us by 10,000 murders and they had, what, a tenth of the population. It was crazy. crazy. Right. But how do we explain that? I, well, I I, it's it's a I think one of the great explanations of this was I spent some time with the police driving around with them a couple nights. And one of the guys uh, told me um, the thing about Venezuela is if you want to commit a murder, come here and you don't, you're never going to get caught. Nobody is prosecuted. Hmm. Nobody. They don't have the they don't have the resources. They don't have the time. They don't have the forensics. They don't have. I mean, the the cops don't even want to go up into Petare, which is like the big, real horrible slum. And when I went up there with them, I mean, everyone kitted out like you wouldn't believe to like you know flak jackets and helmets and all this stuff just to drive through. Hmm. And crime. I remember we pulled over. It's in the piece that we did. We pulled over a guy, <laughs> a guy who was <laughs> drinking a bottle of vodka straight from the bottle that was that was nestled between his legs in the car and he was drinking the from the bottle a bottle of vodka and he goes they talk to him a little bit and he comes back and he guy drives away and we're like that's cool they're like yeah we don't have time for that shit there's a guy just careening all over the road in a car it's like we don't have time to arrest it was such a breakdown of order and then you also have this adjunct kind of force of of the Bolivarian circles and the pe the people that ride on motor motorcycles that are affiliated with the government that, you know, uh, it's it's a crazy you place. Know, it's so, a really crazy so place. So I guess Grandin is actually right in a sense, right? In that they that's their that's how they stand apart from the Soviets and the Cubans is that they never got their shit together enough as a state power. That part's true, yeah. Yeah, to actually, sure. you know, to actually keep this thing together in yeah. some form, which the yeah. Soviets and the Cubans at least managed for a while. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, no, it's true. And, 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 didn't yeah. have enough cops and yeah and army guys. So, it, right? it, it's interesting also that when you go and you see that level of extreme extreme depressing poverty and you're a country that's sitting on the largest proven oil reserves in the yeah, world larger than saudi arabia that's what's just you're giving money to to ecuador bolivia to create this block uh the cubans you know are having their second special period where they had in the 90s because the soviet stuff drew uh, dried up and the same thing's happening now with the cuban uh, with the venezuelan stuff drying up that you ask the question how long are is a, a regime, a government allowed to be in power before they don't fix something? So four years, basically, this in America. Well, there's been no alleviation of poverty. Eight years. Oh, look at the record. I mean, Chavez, I mean, think, just take 99 to today. I mean, that's a long time to go through those slums and say, these are still slums. Yeah. And you guys had a lot of money coming in in, in oil revenue. And you're supposed to, by your own ideology, redistribute this. Why is it not happening? Mm -hmm. Why is Greg Grandin still saying this is the way forward? Well, you, could, you can sustain mystifies me. You can sustain a great deal of graft and cover up for a, a, a fair amount of uh, just complete and total incompetence when oil is is sufficiently expensive. It's once the price starts to fall yeah. uh, that it starts to create uh, real headaches for you. But I, I was asking before about um, Goldman because. I find it so extraordinary that, mm -hmm. and I think for plenty of people, they will find themselves wondering, well, why the hell would uh, a bank be mm -hmm. purchasing debt from a country 
that is almost certainly not in a position to repay this to you. Because they might um, be in the future. Except, <laughs> yes, precisely right, which yeah. is so weird. Yeah. Like the prospect that this regime could actually fall, fail, and that a new government could come into place and would still be carrying, perhaps restructured in some way, but still at amazingly high interest rates, carrying the debt that was accumulated mm. right. under yeah. the Maduro regime, money that is coming into the state, which is being used for it to try to prop itself up to, to punish um, anyone who is daring enough to go out into the street and oppose this regime. There's something really, really gross and disgusting. You know, look, one of that, you know, one of the interesting questions too, I mean, you mean there's, you know, regimes like this, it's typically you go to some place and, you know, horrifying place that everybody's always known was horrifying. I mean, Venezuela used to be one of the, the richest countries in the hemisphere. I mean, it was, just, the, it was always the richest country in South America, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so I mean, what you are we see, talking like 30, 30 year good, transition? I, for I mean, this? I can't it's like even, the 1980s. Yeah, I can't even. Yes. It's I mean, in, in really, the 80s, it was a relatively wealthy country. It's, it's a wealthy amazing. country. Sure. Yeah. And, 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 and it's a beautiful and Caracas is a beautiful city. It's a oh, beautiful yeah. country. Sure. I mean, I saw I remember leaving the airport and I saw John Lithgow there. It was still before it actually, because there's Margarita Island, which was a great resort that people went to and was like a huge, nobody goes there now. People get killed there. It's completely bizarre what has happened. But it's really interesting to see, you know, we were talking a bit ago of like, <laughs> what makes somebody send weird pictures of themselves? I don't, the things you don't understand. What makes the, when I look at Venezuela, it's like, what makes, what possibly could make Nicolas Maduro persist in this yeah. and say, I will not give up. My people are dying. My people are, are starving. There is civil war in the streets. I must be the guardian of, of Chavismo and the Hugo Chavez's legacy. Is it, and this is an honest question, I don't know, is it the fear that at the end of it, they hang Mussolini by his ankles <laughs> and his girlfriend in sure. a public piazza and beat him with a stick? Is it the fear of prison I mean, there is, I mean, you can usually organize some sort of deal because there's still people in the Chavista block that I will get safe passage if that's the case to, you know, Ecuador, Lenin Moreno will take me or something. Hmm. Who knows? I mean, look at what happened in Ecuador. There's been a change in the same party, a chain, Rafael Correa, who was getting very, very edging towards the authoritarian and replaced by somebody whose first name is Lenin, who's actually pulling back from a lot of this stuff. He's actually, hmm. you know, there's a little pullback. And that's happening across Latin America. But they dig their heels in in this way that I don't get. There's some psychological thing. Yeah. And why is the army sticking by? And why are they? Because it's just not going to end well. It can't end well. You know, it cannot. I mean, you know, for me, it's this in the same category of, you know, why would you want to be mayor of New York City? Speaking, uh, speaking of, that, that's speaking totally, of apologists for Chavez. It's totally, totally fair point. Right? Or president of the United <laughs> yeah, States. Yeah, or, yeah. you know, any of the, I don't have the answer to it. Except, do you guys know Max Weber's theory about this? The social scientist, the German social scientist from the early 20th century. His theory was that there are certain people, he didn't really have an actual yeah. causal analysis. But he just said there's certain people, he's trying to explain the robber barons, the big mm -hmm. corporate you know, giants of the time, why they would do this. Because they didn't have any fun. They made all this money. They worked all the time. And they didn't go to parties. They were the richest men on earth, but they didn't actually enjoy it. And his theory was that they had this sort of paternalistic drive. 
they wanted to be the fathers of the world. They wanted to take mm. care of everyone. So that's mm. why they gave away all their money, like Carnegie and Rockefeller. Mm. But so I don't know, Maduro and de Blasio, I don't know. But it's like, also the their... same thing as when you're, when you're fantastically wealthy. I mean, right. I, I, how many people have said to you, and it's said, people have said it to me, and I've said it myself, is that, you know, when I get to half a billion, I can just like, check out and not work anymore. But that, that, it's a different mindset. I respect it that hugely. That keep going and keep accruing. It's like, I would just like, it's... This has been so stressful getting here. I would imagine <laughs> one would imagine. I have no idea. It depends. Yeah, who knows? It depends. But if you if you started with nothing and it's like real, just constant. He worked all the time. He did nothing but work, and he accrued mm -hmm. this math. Why I don't understand. Why Why don't you check out at at a, a half a billion or at a billion and just say, hey, I'll let somebody else. Yeah, there's no no reason to presume don't they don't yeah. enjoy it. Well, look at Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. What do they do? They work all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and Warren Buffett still, I believe, lives in that ranch house in uh, Omaha. Yeah. Nebraska, but, yeah. but it's but, ridiculous. But yeah. work on, but work on whatever they want. I mean, I, I don't know that they don't enjoy that. I mean, whatever whatever oh, it is that gets sure. the dopamine, it gets you the dopamine response that you are that you're after. I mean, perhaps it is you know spreadsheets. But I think Weber was someone it is. But what I think Weber was doing, he was trying to say that the great capitalists have something in common with the great heads of state mm, in yeah. their motivation, like because it's just about this particular power, right? It's sure. not about what your money can get for you in terms of, you know, pleasure yeah. or even freedom, right? It's that it, it's just about being on top of everyone and essentially controlling people, right? With your money or with your state power. Because mm -hmm. Gates and Buffett basically control people. They determine sort of the shape of the world by giving out huge amounts of money to all sorts of people and saying, if you do this, this, and this, I'll give you a billion dollars, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so I, it's just, I don't know, but it's a, it's an interesting theory. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's other places that are screwed up. Um, <laughs> really? and other yeah. things that are Name screwed one. up. Name yeah. one. Uh, North Korea oh, yeah. um, is yeah. one. I'd say uh, so. There have been uh, another, another missile launch, uh, as well as some, uh, mm. I think it's fair to call it saber rattling. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening. Uh, beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. This is a rhetorical flourish from uh, a numbskull, right? Who just, he's not very good on the stump. And then he's so proud of this, he repeats it. And he repeats it, and, it's, and then he says, you know, I, like, as I, like, the, if, the, if face fire and fury like the world has never seen. It's not a rhetorical flourish, Moynihan. Someone, someone gave him that line in exactly the same way someone said, I you, should, you, should call, you should call Mr. Sessions beleaguered. The, the, well, that one, I, 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 I agree. <laughs> I don't know, I, but the, the, the listeners will have the benefit of having just heard it. I, I don't. But I think it was, you could hear him, I think, hesitate on like the world has never seen. It's one of those Trumpisms where he's like, just, you know, what's the, what's the most, where's the most I can go with this? You know, and then he's like, the world's never seen. And he says it again. And you realize for the first time that, that hoary old cliche that, the guy who is this guy is the guy he's going to have the nuclear codes. You know, that's always said during that, during that campaign. 
And I was like, the first time I was like, holy shit, that's actually something to be really scared of. <laughs> and, it is, and it is the anniversary of the bombing of Nagasaki today. It, it is the ninth. Yeah. 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 And it's in, and mm. I don't think Donald Trump has any No way. He has no idea. idea. <laughs> and it doesn't, Steve, it would Steve, have Bannon, Steve Bannon might have told him. This he, is what I'm saying. Steve uh, Bannon probably possibly. gave him the line. Someone gave him the line. Like the world has never seen. And you know what actually the world has never seen? And, and, and I realized this when I'm just like reading this quote, is that we have we're in a pattern for many 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 years and with many presidents that the north koreans are incapable of speaking in a language other than the 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 language that donald trump is echoing you know it's always a sea of fire johnny cash sung a ring of fire that you'll will envelop uh seoul or washington etc it's never been the case that a president has responded with the same type of rhetoric. Mm. And then today, right before we come in, uh, I see that I got a CNN news alert that the North Koreans, um, uh, they threatened, they're threatening, they're saying, we're actually going to figure out the plan to, to screw up Guam now. We're just going to see, but we're, we're drawing up plans at the moment. So it's this game of chicken that has never happened before. It's usually this pattern of what they say is we're, you're going to be, you know, there's going to be a holocaust in the actually original sense of the word, like a, a consumption of fire that is going to come from Pyongyang and you'll never, you're going to regret this forever. And then we give them big bags of grain with the USA scrubbed off of it. And then we're done. And then, you know, rinse, repeat. This is what happens in North mm -hmm. Korea. I don't know what happens now. I mean, this is a new thing, isn't it? Well, well, isn't Maybe. this? Maybe I'm not yeah, sure. Isn't this something? I mean, we we saw some of some of this earlier in the year when we had the uh, the flotilla that was like headed towards North Korea, and there was all sort of like bluster from the Trump administration, and I, I believe we talked about it here. There's kind of this this. Maybe it's a, an actual stratagem. Maybe there is some deliberateness uh, behind the seeming incoherence. Uh, maybe it's the madman theory of foreign policy, where in fact you try to sort of match bluster with bluster, um, while all the t all the while your diplomats are trying to make something work. I'm not at all certain that that is the case. I'm not even positing that that's the case. I'm suggesting that that's a thing. Mm -hmm. that someone has talked about. Uh, and perhaps that's what's going on here. Here, I really don't, I don't know what's happening, but it, it is still very difficult for me to believe that the president himself or anyone else around him think that it is a good idea to actually have a shooting war with the North Koreans. It's the worst, the worst idea of a lot of bad ideas, but yeah. it's the worst one. So, yeah. um, hmm, a couple things. So Mark Bowden, did you see this piece? I think it was in the Atlantic. Yes. Recently in which he said he went and talked to people in the Pentagon and he found that there are three options basically available in the minds of foreign policy establishment types. One is total war, wipe out the regime, send in 500,000 troops. Mm -hmm. The good news is According to Bowden, there is no one in the Pentagon considering that. Mm -hmm. Second option they've considered is decapitation, you know, meaning take out Kim. Special forces or a drone strike or something like that. He did say that that is being considered by certain sectors of the military establishment and the Defense Department. Um, but he said that the majority opinion, this is Mark Bowden, so who knows, but the majority opinion in the Pentagon is mm -hmm. to just just get used to it, get used to that regime yeah. mm -hmm. and accommodate. So I say when Trump does these things and says these things, you know, the thing to do is pay attention to the generals, to Mattis and McMasters and all those guys uh -huh. who, you know, I think generally speaking over the last three or four months, right, that they have demonstrated and Tillerson now mm -hmm. have demonstrated 
a real caution, almost almost a dovishness. And they are clearly, you know, trying to keep this guy in check. And they are voicing what a lot of people in the military have said for a long time. By the way, Andrew Basevich, right? The, yeah. The, yeah. The former uh, general himself or lieutenant. Anyway, he was high up in the military. Whose like, son died in the Iraq war too, by the way. Yeah. So he's written a book about this and he said that, you know, those guys represent a long tradition in the military that is often um, underappreciated, I think, by anti-war types, which is that, you know, they are very aware of who dies in wars and that generally speaking, they have been, and this is true historically, the military have been Absolutely less true. eager to go to war yeah. than these egghead intellectuals from Harvard who ran the Vietnam War or the, you know, Columbia the people. The best and the brightest. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Halberstam's argument. So I think we're seeing that again, mm -hmm. uh, hopefully. Uh, not that I'm a fan of Madison McMaster's, but I think we certainly would rather that they win in this, what seems this to be particular a particular exchange. Well, yeah. it seems like there's a really serious factional fight still going on, which I'm sort of surprised is still going on. Um, Bannon and Miller, mm -hmm. um, and Michael thinks I'm a huge fan. Uh, I'm not. And I, I know in particular, <laughs> in particular on Iran and North Korea sure. uh, and Syria, or well, yeah, Iran and, and, and North Korea in particular, those guys are going to kill everybody if they have their way. They've always been really clear about that. Miller and Bannon I'm talking about. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the rhetoric seems to be still coming from those guys out of Trump's mouth. Seems mm -hmm. to be. I don't know. Who knows what's in Donald's head himself. But, you know, the rhetoric certainly reflects Bannon and Miller's ideas that they enunciated before the campaign and during the campaign about North Korea. But what will actually be the policy, yeah. I think will probably largely, hopefully, fingers crossed, be determined by the generals who are much safer on this stuff. So. I think that's a really good point. And it's one it's one that's often overlooked is that, you know, it is the eggheads and it is it are all those people in, in, in battle that that have no interest. And in, I mean, look, there's, there's, there's a cult in the military of your guys, right? I mean, you hear this conversation all the time, and, and it's like, you know, you don't leave your guys on the battlefield. It's they don't want to put their guys in a situation in which, especially the ones the, the, that are 20 odd thousand that are right there on the border, that will be evaporated within a minute. I mean, there's no way that, that those American bases that are right up there on, on, on the hilariously misnamed DMZ the most militarized place on the, the planet is the demilitarized zone. Uh, they don't want to do that. And, and there are no good options. The, the bad thing about, about all of this is a lot of bad things about, about this. But there's a lot of lessons that, that, that people, that bad regimes take from this. And that's the thing that you have to think about in the future is that if you, if you have nukes, you're in a position to play everybody. You know, and that is, you know, if you give up your nukes in Libya, as the Libyans did, you get invaded, right? And this is somebody mm -hmm. I think says that in the in the World in Disarray film. Mm -hmm. When you, you know, when you let inspectors in, when you give up your stuff, they'll destroy you, and if you don't, they'll leave you alone. And the 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 the, the sort of lessons here are all in the wrong direction. You know, if <laughs> keep your nukes, you'll stay in power, and that's. I mean, this is the horrible, horrible byproduct of the North Korea situation is that everybody knows there are no, you know, this, this, this two great cliches in the North Korea debate is kick the can down the road and there are no good options. 
Um, both of which are true, which is why you know we have kicked the can down the road, and there are no good options. Well, but there is no one. There's there's literally no one with an ounce of sense that believes that a first strike uh, or a decapitation strike is is a good thing. And Bowden, I remember Mark Bowden's piece or Mark Bowden's piece. Uh, I remember reading that, and I've talked to other people who say much the same thing. The worry now is that Donald Trump will rattle the cage so much that they're going to try to try to do something. About it's it. possible. So I just interviewed Hannah Song, who is the president of Liberty in North Korea yeah. for my podcast. And she, in particular, Sokeel Park, who's their main researcher. He's terrific and was in my in phenomenal. my film that I did for Vice as me and Sokeel. I didn't know this. Yeah. He's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. And their work is the path forward. Everyone needs to read their work on not the Korean regime, not the Kim dynasty, but actual North Korean people. Absolutely. Ordinary. That is where the uh, answer lies. Sure. So, and in particular, what they've done is they've, they've interviewed refugees from North Korea who they help liberate, but they just are getting lots and lots of data, which is coming in that they're saying, people at Link are saying that 80 to 90% of North Koreans are using the black market daily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that the goods are coming in from China and they're trading across the rivers, the borders. And that there, with that, there's an accompanying sort of disrespect or less respect for the Kim regime. It's not that people don't sort of aren't obedient in some ways, or at least pay obedience to them in terms of what they say, but that people take the regime less and less seriously internally. So, and here's the most popular thing by far among North Koreans, and there's a huge amount of evidence for this. It is not communism. It is not the Kim regime. It is South Korean Soap, soap operas, operas yeah. which they're bringing in on USB sticks hmm. yeah. by the truckloads. And Culture. that's what people are all about in North hmm. Korea. So, so one of, yeah, yeah. One of the, in this film, the film that I did for Vice about this ages ago, ages ago, I guess it was two and a half years ago, uh, we went to a balloon launch and uh, so Kill Park is actually, it was, uh, it was a great, the moment he's in the film, I ask him about them and he's basically says no comment. He doesn't want, I, he's, I, it, he's clearly not a fan of them, but it, it I, is. I can tell you why. Yeah, no, I know. We, yeah. we talked about this too yeah. and, and, and I, I mean, he told me, you know, off the record, he explained it to me that he wasn't a fan. Um, but one of the things that I found uh, fascinating about it is that there is that overlap there. Um, it's the methodology of it, but the overlap is in these uh, balloon launches. I mean, the weapons are like, you know, mm -hmm. chocolate bars and sure. some American money, a little bit of propaganda because the state used to do them, by the way, the South Korean government used to send balloons north korean government did the mm -hmm. same thing but you know it's almost all usb sticks now. right yeah, sure. and it's not, and, and and they're filled with um uh, south korean soap operas but one of the things that i found fascinating is i talked to a uh, defector and one of the videos that they would send over was uh he went into a south korean supermarket with a gopro and just walked through it yep and then they load that onto the yep. USB drive and launch it across the the, the border on a um, yep. in a balloon that has a uh, little uh, a charge on it. Basically, you crack this thing on the balloon mm -hmm. that you know it has its payload and it's on top of the payload. And you crack this thing, which is an acid that eats through the plastic and then drops the payload. And it's completely random. And we when we went some there was some they brought some tech people from. Uh, uh, San Francisco to outfit them uh, with GPS trackers to see where they landed. And basically the guys were taking things from REI and they were re-engineering them and re-engineering them. They were just like kind of breaking them apart and doing some things because the problem is it gets so high up and it, they freeze mm -hmm. and they, they expect that. But where it lands, the GPS comes back on. And the first one they did when we were there it came back on in South Korea. <laughs> it was really disappointing. So, I mean, the reason I don't love the uh, the Westerners, you know, sending in stuff over the border, even though I think it's great if they have USB sticks, is that it kind of presents this image 
or it continues this narrative basically that they need to be saved by us. But when in fact they are doing it all by themselves, they don't need our help. And they're every single day, they're hollowing out that regime from within, I think that they're just, so. they're just yeah. moving. Well, I mean, that's what the evidence shows. And so, yeah. you know, the fine, it's great. Send in USB sticks. I'm not opposed to that, but you know, it, that is going to have very little impact. Certainly it's going to have, it, it's, it's a minor thing compared to a trivial thing, really, compared to what the North Koreans are carrying on their backs over the rivers every single day yeah. and then distributing among themselves and enjoying in the privacy of their own homes while the regime isn't watching. Yeah. It's, it's phenomenal what's going on. And Americans have no idea well, about per, per, this. Just one final point yeah. on that. Presuming that is true, let me just take that yeah. as a presumption. Right. Um, is it the, the one good thing I would say about it is that there is a kind of ripple effect on it in the sense that we made a film about it ultimately. Um, and it did really well. And like a million people watched it on YouTube. And the the good thing about that is, is even if it's virtue signaling, even if it's Western posturing, it has actually raised a lot of attention uh, of what's going on inside the regime, because most people before they kind of see it in the news now, it's a hot topic at the moment, yeah. don't really have any sense sure. uh, that that the regime is that bad. So, so you know, when, when I was there, Wired Magazine had sent a photographer, and I think they ended up doing a cover story on it and reaching people in Silicon Valley who then were working on all these projects of how to get more technology in from the, even over the Chinese border from people that are smuggling it in, not just doing it in the kind of grandstanding way of, you know, doing it in balloons that God knows where they land, you know? So yeah. there's one, there's a good effect somewhere. I hope, I hope. Is, is there, is there any point at which the United States ought to do something quickly first and forcefully? Not first. No. Not first. <laughs> Not first. Not no. first. No. So the only legitimacy that, that the Kim regime has among North Koreans, ordinary North Koreans, is the presence of the U.S. military and their allies, the South Koreans. And so that's what Kim has to use to say, hey, look, they are imperialists who want to kill us. You better you better be loyal to me or else we're all going up in a, in a you know, <laughs> in an inferno. So, you know, me, hey, um, <laughs> I think all you got to do is do less as a government and just let the people continue to bring in freedom from outside. That's pretty much the only thing you can do right now. And I think that um, the American military should be there in a defensive capacity mm -hmm. with, in, with the, you know, assisting the South Koreans who have uh, God knows how many problems they have themselves. I mean, the South Korean government is not a model of liberalism in any sense. So mm -hmm. it's not that there's like this great, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to be, there's no moral equivalence between the two of them. South mm -hmm. Korea mm -hmm. is a, gr a great country to live in. <laughs> if you're not agreeing with it. I don't want to end that at all. Just, just, any, just ask a North Korean. Yeah, just ask a North Korean. But you know, it's, you know, I had a, I had a fixer there where I was saying, Hey, can you get me some of these people on the horn who are kind of pro North Korea that live in the South? And he said, sure, let me look into it. The next day the police showed up at his house. Well, I, and they had been reading his email. So, I wanna, so it's not, a, I'm just saying it's not a liberal, uh, uh, a bastion of liberalism, but it's a lot better than the was going on, well, obvious, just, obviously. But uh -huh. um, if the Kim regime decided to act uh, in an irrational sense, and there is a certain rationality to, to the way these people act, in a really irrational sense and decided to start plopping mortars um, into South Korea, the United States military would be wasting all of its money been being there since, you know, the 1953 or 1950, really. Mm -hmm. And if it didn't do anything, I would, yeah. that's, that's totally crazy. Well, I mean, you, they should help to you, defend uh, South Korea. I mean, that would, earlier, that would just be suicide. Yeah, be suicide. They're not that, they're, they're actually not, not irrational in that way. Yeah. Earlier, earlier in this conversation, yeah. Wenhan, you said, and I've said it here on this podcast before, uh, it is the most unoriginal thing one can say uh, about um, North Korea, that there are no good options. 
Um, and I think what we mean by that is there are no options that are guaranteed to sort of clean this dicey situation up. But I mean, what you just described there is, a, is uh, I think that's a good option. That is the practical option. It's that the practical is option. certainly option. not. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's one of those things like what is the option that prevents there from being a military conflict and completely solves this problem forever? In most situations, there isn't one of those. Right. Yeah. You know, there's there's perhaps an obvious choice where you're left with only one. But in this particular case, this sounds like this is the good option. I think I we can call we, it the good option. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I would qualify it in one way. <laughs> okay. it's, it's, you know, it's, I would say it's the best option. It's the good option. Okay. I like it's that. It's the best one we have. But if you read a lot about North Korea, as uh, I do for reasons that I still can't explain, <laughs> um, even novels like, you know, the the Orphan Master, uh, what's uh, uh, Adam Johnson, I think his name was? I'm not familiar. It's a, one of the national, it's one of the great, it's so damn good. It's a novel that takes place in North Korea, which is really the Orphan Master's Son, it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, it, really terrific. But if you read these things and you read these books, The Aquariums of Pyongyang, a lot of these other uh, books uh, that are really, really terrific, of one of a sort of state poet of North Korea who wrote a great book about this too, is if you read about life in North Korea, you really have to tamp down the instinct to say, I really want to do something because it is one of the most horrifying existences that you could possibly imagine. It is a mm. really a alien Stalinist um, nightmare. And if you want to indulge that instinct to like, let us free these people with the force and the might of the American and South Korean military, the reality smacks you in the face and says, one cannot do that. But I do understand that instinct after reading a lot about North Korea to actually, you know, destroy this despicable regime. Uh, uh, quickly, uh, you know, in addition to not escalating militarily, the one of the worst things the U.S. government can do is impose trade sanctions on North Korea. And that's what they do. Right. And so that all that does is it retards the flow of this stuff, this black market stuff across the borders, which is really that's really going to take it down the regime. I have low blood sugar, so I'm going to let uh, that uh, rest. But I had a point to add to that, but we'll talk about it some other time. <laughs> no, we'll come back to it. Yeah, we'll come back to it. I don't want to die on the part. I want to. I want to. I want to come back. I want to come back to it. And look, we, I'm. I'm already. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the the United States potentially taking the fight to ISIS in the uh, in the Philippines. Hmm. Um, which sort of seems like the kind of thing that one might want to talk about. Um, it, it, it sort of seems like the sort of thing that Aunt Maxine or someone else could get uh, excited about. Um, I know that Maxine Waters' had a recent stint on The View, um, which ended with the chance of lock him up, lock him mm. up, a pronouncement that she would first impeach Donald Trump and then she would go after Putin, excuse me, Pence, that was her goof. She yeah. called him. Uh-huh. So you yeah, I, start I, with P. You know, I had forgotten um, just how corrupt she is. Yeah. She's just how super corrupt. Just- I, I just want to say a message to my friends and comrades on the left. Do not. Why do I have to, why do you <laughs> They're not going to listen to you. Do not repeat the worst stupidities of the right. Lock her up was idiotic. Lock him up is also idiotic. Good God. Well, no, you, have to, you have to lock him up. Originality of the, the would be nice. Good yeah. God. But no, I mean, it, one. Um, look, this is the kind of thing where one could actually make some progress. AUMF, contain the guy, mm. constrain him. Yes. Ensure You're that talking- we don't get deeply involved in a conflict in the Philippines. 
probably shouldn't do that. But let's step away from foreign <laughs> They policy. have their own crazy person in Rodrigo Duterte. Well, this is, who can, well, this is the thing. Who I mean, once in, bragged about throwing yes. somebody out of a helicopter. Well, this is the situation. <laughs> this is like when Trump went over to uh, Saudi Arabia and he had the conference with uh, a number of Muslim heads of state and talks to them about the fact that we don't need perfection, we need partners. I suppose that's precisely the sort of message that you take to the Philippines with you. Yeah. Um, and, and get into bed with, uh, with a, a legitimate monster but there. But it, 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 in one way, it shows you how how um, the, the Trump government steps on its own tail. <laughs> Is that what I'm trying to say? I have I, low blood sugar. I don't know. Steps on itself all the time and creates. Kicks itself in the face. Kicks itself in the face. Scores own goals. Let's, let's use, I want to I create that one as a thing. I mean, yeah. this is a Camilleism. Right? Kicks itself in the face <laughs> constantly and scores own goals is that, you know, we are so far from the Gene Kirkpatrick moment and, you know, dictatorships and double standards where, you know, if you were seen walking next to a bad guy, and you were, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan, or if you were George mm. Schultz or something, mm. it'd be like, oh, there's the Gene Kirkpatrick uh, doctrine that you don't get in bed. This is a very sort of brief version of what you said. You don't get into bed um, with dictators, but you do get into bed with authoritarians, basically, <laughs> if, 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 if they are supporting it. And this used to be a terribly controversial thing. And we are so far down the garden path of like madness of the Trump uh, government that one would expect if it was if it was, uh, you know, Barack Obama or something like, can you believe those pictures of him shaking hands or Rex Tillerson shaking hands or whoever shaking hands with Rodrigo Duterte or having a nice phone conversation with a guy who is literally murdering drug users without or supposed drug himself. users without trying where his his shock troops are yeah. in the, the death toll is astronomical without trial and without even a sense of a trial. And, you know, this is just the beginning of the madness of Duterte. And nobody cares. It's yeah. amazing. So it's this, really amazing. Uh, Kirkpatrick, this is why she coined the term totalitarian. It's to draw a distinction between those awful yes. regimes that don't trade with us with those awful regimes that do trade with us. So yeah. um, your friends over at the Council on Foreign Relations, they were the ones who came up with this doctrine beginning in 1939. They said... That, you know, that's what we should be doing going forward. After we win this war, World War II, that's what we're going to do. We're going to impose these rules, set of rules where we're going to we're going to deal with the authoritarians who will trade with us. But anyone who seals off their borders to trade to the United States, mm -hmm. like the Nazis, like the Japanese and ultimately like the Soviets, we are going to do whatever we can to eliminate them from the face of the earth. So it's total war in a sense against them. But yeah, I mean, Michael's right that um, when Kirkpatrick comes along, she says, oh, well, let's be a little more fine. Let's make a more, finer point about this. It's let's call them totalitarian so that we can actually justify this ridiculous double standard that we're you know putting forward. Because it's not about humanitarianism; it's about maintaining economic control of the world. So if we don't have these trade relations with a nation in which we are the dominant power, because we have the ec economic power to do that, we can't do this. We can't. We can't have the American century. Mm -hmm. So that's why the, Kirkpatrick's intervention on this with that, the invention of that word is so important in this history. And by the way, Jean Kirkpatrick, uh, before she died, wrote a book uh, really vehemently opposing the Iraq war. And mm. it surprised a lot of people. And Because, it, yeah, I th probably, I'm guessing, but I guess, it, I bet it was because Saddam, you know, was willing to deal. Totally. Yeah. That's pretty much what it is. There you is go. That, and and, and it, it did play into also a kind of slightly more realist, I mean, she was never you know, a neocon in the sense that somebody like Paul Wolfowitz. Oh, no. Oh, no. And I mean, there was a lot of just people that were in that orbit were all just mm -hmm. thrown into a basket. 
and she's actually a much more interesting figure. And um, um, I think it, I, it's something, it is in the same, I can't remember the title of the book. God, I should just look it up. It's the computer in front of me. Ever, you know, it's like the Everlasting War for Everlasting Peace, which was you know, kind of the Gore Vidal, I know, and it's not the exact title. But it was something to that effect. It was a very sharp title of the book. And, you know, she, I think she was probably had some endowed chair at AEI or something where she's getting paid mm -hmm. because of her service to the United States in the Cold War. But a lot of these Cold War ideologies didn't shift over very easily to the kind of post 9-11 thing. And that's a kind of interesting thing that guys like Jacob Heilbrun and these people who wrote books about neoconservatism and the, the, the ideas of neoconservatism didn't really grapple with in a way that I thought deserved a little more attention. You know, Fran when Francis Fukuyama kind of pulled off from, you know, jumped off the, the, the neocon train, he wrote it pretty interestingly about it and about what neoconservatism was. You know, obviously, so much of it was a domestic policy movement when it when, you know, the Nathan Glazers of the world became neoconservatives. Yeah. But, you know, it was at its at its at its heart. There was the Stalinist and the anti-Stalinist. But how did that actually shape and how did that matter? And how did one apply the philosophy of neoconservatism after 9-11? It, it, it was a lot more interesting than people made it out to be at the time. I would yeah. Say. But well, it's, I mean, I'm getting a little in the weeds. No, no it's, it's okay. It's, it's okay. actually interesting. There's, that's, that's, yeah. There are people stuff. who are going to be very disappointed because their expectation would have been that I, I put Russell and Moynihan in the room. I was just going to say. And, and it's time. It's personal. Look what just happened, but Camille. damn it. Look what just happened. We had a very long conversation about no. foreign policy. Yeah. Several major issues in foreign policy. Sure. And goddamn, do you know why? Did I just sell out? Is that what no, happened? No, yes, no, 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 I no, totally no. did. Is my soul no. just like lying I was, on I was going to say, if we that, ever get the Richard Haas thing done, if we ever yeah. do that podcast, yeah, sure. Oh, Thad should be in the room. Well, then oh, we're going to well, well, sit well, out I'm, there with Fisher. We're because getting along so well. <laughs> but I, I, I like Richard, um, so I don't <laughs> yeah. want to do that. Well, that makes one of us. It is. It is. Well, I know that. It's not. It's not that. I will. I will say that it is me. I am a defeated human being in the past month, and I've given. I've been beaten down, and I was everywhere, and I've given up on everything. And I'm tired of arguing. <laughs> so maybe I'm not any good. Maybe I'm going to retire from the podcast right now. Should I do that? Should I just back out, but, Camille? Just, 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 yeah, like Jay-Z. This and, is it. This is yeah, the Black Album and, and you'll be back. And, yeah, you know, and like, you know, I'll get pissed off again at something and I'll it's come fine. back yeah. shuffling with, you know, Kleenex boxes on my feet yeah. saying, can I yell about something? Can yeah, you give me absolutely. a microphone? You, yell you can always yell, baby. <laughs> you can always yell here. Um, we should yell about something else, something that um, is likely of importance to a great many people. Um, this has been a week of, or I guess the, the interim between our two podcast dispatches um, have been filled with uh, racial diversity upsets. Um, I think almost the day or a day or two after um, we wrapped the podcast, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, emerged and he, he wrote something. It was, a, it was a momentous occasion. The earth moved um, and everyone knew that he was very upset about this uh, Confederate thing. Uh, that HBO might actually be producing a film, uh, not a film, a television show produced, directed by the two guys who do Game of Thrones. Um, and all we know is that it's some sort of alternative history um, about a world in which the South actually won the Civil War. Yeah. We know nothing else um, except for the fact that those two guys are white, and he was uh, he was quite upset about that. I don't know. I just I don't know I, can that... I just say I, I just watched the, 
<laughs> what did you watch? I just watched the first three episodes of Game of Thrones. But you didn't, you haven't seen four yet? No, the first three episodes uh, oh, ever. Of ever. ever. Oh, 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 you yeah. don't even mean the season. No, I don't, I have no idea what's happening. I just wanted to be able to talk to people who are talking about the red wedding and making yeah. all these jokes. Well, you're, it's no going to take you a little while. Yeah, I, I, yeah. but in the first three, I don't know what's happening. There's yeah. a lot of guys with beards on That's, respect. I, I find it unwatchable. Yeah. It's well, so far. Are yeah, you a both fan of, of you, Both of you are problematic. Before, Not only, before we I, talk about the competitor yeah. thing, are you a fan of? I am oh, a fan of yeah. Game of Thrones. Not yeah. only am I a fan of Game of Thrones, I was a fan of the books before Whoa. this. I finished all of them. I'd been waiting desperately. I just have a simple question. I'm pleased that the that the show has gone beyond the book because the show seems to be finally hitting its stride. The fourth episode of this season. You know what? Absolutely remarkable. What? I you got going, chills. I don't understand. This is the, the problem. You know happening. what the problem is for me? <laughs> I'm not smart enough for that show. I, I cannot huh. understand what's going on. Maybe so. Might be true for me too. We're just. We don't have the You know what it is? It's it's. We don't have the IQ. I don't, I don't know about that. Most There are lots of Americans that love speaking, the show, and it's of, I, not a, it doesn't have anything to do with IQ. The IQ, the, IQ, the best thing, because I, I, so I watched the first three. This is, do you see this? Who is the, it? The Fisher is supposed to be keeping this on the he, rails. Well, he fucking this gave is, up. I don't blame him. This is actually our longest podcast ever. Him. I'm confident we're, we're going to split this into like two three episodes. Ep- three? episodes if, by if, the end. If, I, like, if I may, just, just for the, Ted and, and Michael, the, 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 there's a lot of metaphors in Game of Thrones that are all going back to the War of the Roses. And, it all, and it's all pretty obvious once you think of it in that in those terms. That's but what, I tell you, this by to, to Camille's point, we should actually this podcast should be like uh, Sandinista, the Clash record. <laughs> we just split it up into three albums, and all three of them have good songs on it, but it's mostly <laughs> mediocre. Um, but the, to the Game of Thrones point, I got on. Um, what do you call it? The internet. And I got, I started, <laughs> I started searching it, searching on the Game of Thrones because I don't know what the hell's going on, and you can't. I'm trying to figure out who this guy is and who that guy is, and yeah. everyone's fucking all the time. And I'm like, good so God, this a, is like, there's a lot of so sex. much. Yeah, I, the first. I, episode, I do remember that part. Yeah, the so sex the, is good, and the you first hate it. Or that, second that, episode, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I know it, there's no spoilers here because it's the first episode from yeah. like 20 years ago. Yeah, it's kind and of I a think, spoiler for someone. Uh, no, well, some it's like, I think it's so old now. Seven or eight, it's like Red Fox is in the fucking thing. <laughs> I watch, so I watched the first episode and I'm trying to get Red, online. Red Fox in the Game of Thrones. Yeah, he's like, Bad time I'm, I'm going whiskey. back to Dragon. Is going to the kitchen. Like, what are you talking about? So there's this part and there's this guy that's fucking this other guy. Sorry, I know it's on Sirius. It's okay. You don't have to apologize and, because they're gay. It's no, fine. No, but the guys, it's his, it's his sister. Oh no! This is not a guy. That's a girl. no. It's the beginning yeah. and the first couple episodes. Yeah, and Cersei, I'm like, Cersei and you Jamie. are really trying to set this tone. We're like, okay, just here's the show that you're going to be watching. This guy is fucking his sister. Yeah, and but I'm he like, really loves her. Uh, apparently, he's yeah, one of I mean, these good guys. Super just, really. Don't tell me that's a spoiler. This is the zeitgeist. But so I looked it up. This is a very long way to get to this. So I was looking it up and I was looking up the Game of Thrones stuff on Twitter. Or on, um, you know, Google or whatever. <laughs> and so this thing comes up. There's a great quote from Snoo- uh, Snoop. What the hell is it? Snoop Lion, wherever he is now. He's, where he, he's just back to Snoop Dogg. Is he time. back to Snoop Dogg now? Where he is talking to an interviewer from the New York Post. And he's saying, I really love the Game of Thrones because it gives this gives me a great sense of what happened in the past. <laughs> <laughs> and it's amazing. And it's a total. And, oh. and the interviewer is like, wait, are you? Wait a second. Are you serious? And it was the best thing I'd ever read. And he, I've only watched like two episodes and there's like flying monkeys and, and dragons and all this shit. That's and, and, and Snoop Dogg, uh, I thought it was real. That's the best thing. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, I want to be a part of this Game of Thrones thing. Um, the, what was the sex between a who and a who? What was it? The relationship? Uh, 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 the brother, brother and sister. sister. Brother and sister. So, yes. you know, Jamie, Jamie, and, I, Jamie I said, and Cersei. I said this reflects the zeitgeist. 
mm-hmm. because the I think the fastest growing subgenre in porn is incest. Is that right? Yep. Is that right? Oh yeah. Is it like you mean like but they fake it, right? I mean, I've been told by people who <laughs> analyze the yeah. industry yeah. of yeah. Photographic I've, I've, films. I've been told by people who have shows on Fox News. <laughs> oh my god! Well, you know, we started this particular thing. I was going to get to Google, and, and maybe we'll still get there, and then we'll get to hour four. But I was just going to say that like this Joe is one Rogan. of those. Bam. This is one of those few times where I have had sort of a point of agreement with um, Tanahisi, <gasps> not in terms of the substance what? of his piece, yeah. because. It's ridiculous and he's wrong um, <laughs> the, that he can be outraged by this thing that hasn't been made yet and it shouldn't be made. And the fact that anyone wants to make it is an indictment of the United States and proves the deep white supremacist affection for the South, the constant desire to go back, to relive that era and to give them the victory that they always should have had. Um, I'm already asleep. I don't, even, I don't even begin to care. Absolutely nonsense. I, I tell you, I don't want this show to be made. And I don't want it to be made, and I've told you this, uh, yeah. Moyan, um, I don't want it to be made because my expectation is that this will be sort of ridiculousness heaped on top of ridiculousness, a retelling of the, 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 um, the United States during the era of slavery, um, eviscerated of anything approaching sort of comple- comple- complexity and nuanced, like recast and with with stories that parallel all of the various social justice contests that are playing out today slaves wearing hoodies who are being thrown up against cars and 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 patted down because it shows that we really haven't made any progress in America confederate this show would go on to win like every damn award imaginable because it would be just the purest possible indictment. So you're of the, you're the, the exact, United States being yeah. the most awful place imaginable. So this is this is alternative history based on a phony contrived conception of what actually happened in the past and it is going to be disastrous so why in that is way. Coates opposed to it. Then I don't know. So I think it's. I think it's all a front. And yeah. and oh, and I suspect that they have put up a front and they said, "Oh, we don't want this thing to get made." And then maybe it gets made, and it's like, "Wow, wow!" It it tells the truth about what America you know, really is. You know, the the thing is, it's. it's I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm, reason, I'm a little drunk. The reason that um, you know, you disagree with Coates on this is that nobody knows what the show is because there's not even a script yet, I don't think. No, there's no script. There's no script. There's no script. The only thing they know is the two guys responsible for one of the most successful shows in the history of television said, we should do a show like Man in the High Castle. You know the one where they pretend the Nazis won the war? That one, the super successful one on Amazon? We're going to do the same thing with the Civil War. Yeah, Nazis? Yeah, we could do. We'll do that. People watch that, and there's no problem. There's no. There's no. By, by the way, this is the oldest genre in literature. By the way, I mean, this is. I mean, the Man in the High Castle. You can say, well, the Man in the High Castle, which the first season, which was not bad actually. I watched yeah. it on Amazon. I kind of liked it. I liked it. Um, it doesn't really follow the book, but it has its own path, and it's pretty interesting. And and I didn't watch the second season, but yeah. you know, it's you know Robert Harris's book Fatherland, which sold eighty billion copies probably right. 25, 30 years ago. The that that you and know this alternative history stuff is you know historians write make a lot of money actually. There's a bunch of historians who actually sure. write. Uh, alternative history novels and and that this is some new thing and that it would provoke some sort of outrage just on this subject 
in people's motivations would be questioned as to why they want to make this show when they're the, <laughs> the bookshelves grown under the weight of people making these alternative history books. Like, would I don't understand if there is, but I Brith was angry at a man in a high castle saying, and it is very sensitive to us, mm. the fact that the Nazis have taken over the eastern half of the United right. States and the Japanese the western half. It is mm-hmm. a, a, a memory from our past that we don't want to relive. I don't remember that debate. Maybe I missed it. Right. I don't know. Good Seems point. ridiculous. Can we, can we talk about this Google thing quickly? Sure. sure. Can we still do this, Fisher? Do we have time for this? We don't really. We got all the time. We're, 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 all the time we're, in the world. we're doing the third show right just now. Just keep yeah. going. Last, okay, last, yeah. last point. So, <laughs> so yeah, um, in recent days, my computer has actually died. That's how long we've gone. I'm out it's of over. nicotine. <laughs> it, literally out of nicotine. There's still alcohol. This is a situation where a Google employee writes a, writes a diversity, writes a memo, um, and it is circulating inside on Google's, perhaps on the Skype channel, maybe on something else, whatever. Slack it's circulating channel. internally. And it is about the, the, the diversity initiatives at Google and what he uh, describes as the groupthink um, of Google. We sort of follow this whole thing through the weekend. We have a situation where the diversity officer, the lead diversity officer at Google um, actually releases a statement, um, a statement that is interestingly worded, um, but that effectively says that, look, you know, this diversity is an it is an incredibly important part of Google's uh, values. This is important to us. But we also believe that people ought to be able to hold opinions um, or perspectives that aren't necessarily popular. That's over the weekend. I think that was either Saturday or Sunday that she released this statement. Um, by Monday, we discover that he has been fired. I think I have the timeline right. I could I think be that's, wrong. I think that's basically right. And, and, you know, by the time that most people hear this and we know our listeners very well, they'll know, they know the, the, the rudiments of the story. And that's pretty much all you need to know, because I think the two outrages of this, I, th- there's, I actually would probably say something that most people would disagree with. I don't think it's completely outrageous that they fired him. Just to be honest, I don't think it's completely outrageous. And the reason is, is that when, and when I, and again, this says something about the tenor of the times that we're living in, but you know, that's the, this is the world that we live in now, unfortunately, is that I would never in a million years send something like a, that. A man of- a manifesto. A manifesto. It's like, hey, uh, calm down, Ted Kaczynski. I mean, you don't, I mean, do I agree with some of the points in it? Is it ironic that the guy said there's a lack of ideological diversity and he gets fired for it? Yeah, of course. But at the same time, and the, fir- the thing that kept looming with me is like, why, why would you do that? I mean, I get that you should be able to trade that with somebody you are on a you know Slack channel with or somebody you work with and say, you know, this guy has similar views. He might disagree with him, but I'm going to send him to... But this was like a well-formatted manifesto that went out to, I, I guess, a bunch of people... And people yeah, are offended, in, in, et cetera. Yeah, internally, I think it's silly that they were they were offended. This is, I mean, just, I mean, get the fainting couches for this thing. It was pretty banal in some places, but uh, from what I read. But at the same time, uh, you know, why on earth would you do something like he that? He just wanted an early retirement. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> he was well, tired of working. Well, he's, Am I well, wrong he's, about that? I could be wrong about that. Well, this. he's Am not. About this? which part? Well, about that it's <laughs> not totally crazy that he was fine. Well, no, okay. look, well first I mean, of all, can I just say something? Please. Okay. You're a libertarian, right, Camille? Uh-huh. 
Isn't Google a private entity? Listen, I think Google has <laughs> Google they, has every Google has do anything they want. Like absolutely, that? Okay. they have every okay. right to fire him. In my estimation, I think you ought to be able to fire him because you don't like the way he looked at you because he's he's into fat chicks and you think that's gross. You can fire him for whatever reason you want in Camille's world. Mm-hmm. However, they don't believe that. They believe in a different set of standards and that there ought to be certain protections and that certain particular things ought to be priorities, in which case, so long as they feel that way, I am all too happy to see him decide that he's going to pursue a lawsuit uh, and for them to have to pay some sort of penalty um, for deciding to, to purge people who have unpopular views. But, but Fisher, I don't have, my computer is dead. Um, can you give us, uh, perhaps a, a, a taste of some of the, the aspects of this article, because this is an article, this, not an article, the memo is something that has been represented in the media as being anti-diversity, um, which I mean, maybe that's a fair characterization, but I'm not, it, it I'm not quite isn't. sure that's right. Isn't. Yeah, anti-diversity is wildly inaccurate. So it begins with, I value diversity and inclusions, and, 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 I'm, and I'm not denying that sexism exists, and don't endorse using stereotypes. Here we go. Slap your hands together. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. Um, but. So, yeah. So <laughs> here, so I, I've actually wrote in my notes here some stuff that he probably thought was helping, but really isn't. Uh, and then some bullet points. Openness to, directed towards feelings and aesthetics rather than ideas. This is what he's mm-hmm. saying women have and men don't. Mm-hmm. Women generally also have a stronger interest in people rather than things relative to men. Interpreted as empathizing versus systemizing. These two differences in part explain why women per- relatively prefer jobs in social or artistic areas. This is where he's getting into trouble. This is where he's kind of making it as, you know, we could have women here, but they, not so many of them, if, if they're not really supposed to be here, he gets into stuff like neuroticism, higher anxiety, lower stress Mm. tolerance. This is, this is the stuff that, that popped out now. So when people were saying stuff like it's an anti-diversity screed, that's bullshit. But when, when he, he, the stuff about biological stuff that uh, he really doesn't have any business authority that's, that's, authoritatively. Well, right, yeah. But this is but this is the thing. Even even in those instances, like he was in fact referring to academic studies and research that has been done. Sure, but and is that his job? No, it's it's, it's certainly not his job. <laughs> but he does work at an organization that has made an essential component of what it does, of how it operates, ensuring that it meets some threshold for ethnic representation. Since since 2014. Now, that's a very, very short period of time. What's that? Since 2014, Google has spent a quarter of a billion dollars, $265 million on its diversity efforts. That is incredible. That was reported in the LA Times today. And so apparently they're failing. So, I mean... The one thing I would say in, <laughs> in his defense there We're failing is that, in what way? Uh, well, because because according to this this guy is that you know he came through this training was like we're failing hugely on diversity. Yeah, he had microaggression training. Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. I mean, this is the whole environment is bananas. It's my issue is is that you know you can be bad at science and not really understand the science. And people should be able to deal with that or freeze you out at work or something. But it's the entire environment that that is is bizarre to me that Google would spend a, a quarter of a billion dollars on God knows what, probably these self self-taught 
diversity trainers, et cetera. What is, I don't know what this is doing and what they're getting for it. We do know. Well, they, they, we do they know. actually call it unconscious bias training. Yes. And okay. that's mandatory. So and we this, do so know. This, so this is, this is the better stuff. This is the stuff that unfortunately nobody got to because it's near the conclusion. Like they, they already decided they knew everything about this guy. Well, no, he, no one actually read this, Fisher. True. We're, we're doing something weird. There is. So, so he, he, he says that intention should be prioritized when policing, you know, transgressions in, you know, against microaggressions. And a, 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 a pretty decent quote is, uh, sensitivity increases both our tendency to take offense and our self-censorship, leading to authoritarian policies. Speaking up without the fear of being harshly judged is central to psychological safeties, but these practices can remove that safety by judging unintentional transgressions. Pretty reasonable, no? There's a lot of data that shows that corporations that have imposed these diversity training regimes have have no greater diversity than before, that these are complete failures. In fact, I think there's several studies that show that those corporations become less diverse, hmm. which makes some sense because it's imposing intellectual uniformity, right? So they become certainly less diverse in that way. I was going to say, though. So I would spend not a dollar on diversity training for my employees if I had a company. That's because you're a monster. But if that guy worked for me and he did that, I'd fire the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because, no, I agree. Because if you're at all interested in having women work for you or just the smartest people work for you, yeah. right? Uh, some of those might be women. And what he's saying is, it sounds like to me, and I read it, you know, that he's saying that women are biologically less able to do these jobs. Yeah, it's not what he said. I, yeah. No, it's not what he said. Mm. No, what he says, I, what he says is, no, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm not, that's this what, is the That's thing. what Fisher just said. No, I mean, it's, it's not, that's I, not I, what I, he said. I, I no, think Fisher, what, Fisher it, read, Fisher read a few passages from a 10 page memo. Um, the, what he says is preference, is, right? Yes. He's talking about on average, their interests are in this particular way. And Having particular diversity targets might be misguided. Part of the reason it might be challenging to or part of the reason why there might not be quite as many women here as you expect, because, again, I don't know what your standard is. Are you going for for 51 percent of the staff at reason in any particular role ought to be women or are you interested in the percentage of women who are pursuing degrees in, say, computer engineering and have the requisite experience to do the job? In which case, you're not talking about 51% of that population. You might be talking about 20%. Google uh, from uh, is 20, the entire staff, and that includes everybody. This is not like programmers, et cetera, is 29% female. And it was 29% female at the beginning of the diversity efforts. Oh, I mean, that is, that is actually- It's 29% female today. There you and that's, go. But that's exactly, but this is what I'm right saying. Down. That is actually incredibly high yes. relative to the total sure. population yes. of women and it's who seems, are likely skilled enough to do that job, not because sure. they are genetically unable to, but because there are, in fact, choices being made. The bottom line here is that all of these diversity programs, all of them, all of them operate from the basis that the reason why there is a weird distribution, weird as in does not conform to the total sort of population uh, demographics for the nation or perhaps the state or the county, is because of discrimination mm -hmm. and bias. Yeah. So basically his, it, where he is on this, and I, you know, who cares what this random engineer thinks, but he comes out of his diversity training and he wants to he wants to write about it. La-di-da. Good for you. But, I mean, his, his the premise is from him is, I am going to explain some 20-year-old kid who's just clicking around the internet. Ugh, I'm not the best source here. I'm going to explain that we don't have more women in the com company 
And it's not because of sexism. That's basically his right. argument. Uh-huh. It's because of, you know, biological factors that make blah, 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 blah. Is that true? There are, there was a, an article in the uh, Toronto Globe and Mail, um, you know, left-leaning paper in, in that I sent to you this morning um, mm-hmm. in Canada. It, it a woman who's a scientist and studies this stuff and says, yeah, basically he gets the science right. And I guess it's what you do with that science. But I think that to, to, to pivot slightly off this in the same kind of thing is that there's a private company involved, as uh, Thad mentioned. And as I said, you know, it's just you know, anybody who brings this kind of heat on you, you should you should bring him into HR at the very least and have a conversation with him. But well, there he, is some, he didn't he didn't leak the memo. Uh, <laughs> no, but 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 always presume it's like people who say. Uh, there's this Facebook group of journalists that I'm a part of, and sometimes things get leaked, and they're like, I cannot believe that this got leaked. This is a private Facebook group. It's like, dude, if you're putting something on the internet, it's 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 public. Well, if you have, send an email to somebody Facebook who's group. not your yeah, best friend, what it's in this Facebook group. <laughs> it's, 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 you really, it, you don't want to know. It's really bad. <laughs> We're plotting no, the I, next invasion of Iraq. Oh, cool. Um, so it's, you know, that stuff I get. You know, and I think that that I have some sympathy in a way. The Google's response to this was ridiculous. Their letter was ridiculous. But um, there was another story that happened at the exact same time. And it was um, the always entertaining but never intentionally Lena Dunham who said (laughs) that she had overheard a conversation in an airport between two American Airlines employees who were apparently making fun of trans people. Now, we have to believe Lena Dunham, who doesn't really have great credibility on this issue, but I kind of maybe want to believe her. And the reason I do is because it was pretty banal what they were saying. I think it was like some, they could have been older people, who knows, said like, I don't understand this trans stuff. It's gross. I would think it's so weird or gross if my son or decided that they became trans or something. That was it. Um, And so she contacted American Airlines customer service to report this grievous crime of people having an unpopular opinion and screenshotted her interactions. And they're like, we're looking into it, Miss Dunham. We got the bat signal is out and we're going to go do it. <laughs> and it's like, this is what bothers me about this is that this is a story that will disappear. Right. But what bothers me about this is that Lena Dunham and the people that were retweeting this didn't think this was strange. We've actually, we are actually in a society now where views are that, that are so toxic that to even, uh, you know, express them sotto voce in public life in a public space with an employee where someone might be listening might get you reported in this kind of really, truly Orwellian way. So the key fact you left out there is that that was a private conversation that yeah, the two right, flight right. attendants were having. At work. Un- unlike dude at Google. Not not really at work, but anyway, not like unlike dude at Google who broadcast yeah. it, yeah. right? Yeah. To employees, he probably has some authority or had some authority over other employees. Yeah. Again, I it sounds to me, and I also agree that he, he shared it on a Slack channel that is specifically for talking about these diversity issues. I Internally. have been convinced for a long, long time yeah. that the the differences in the you know the, the fact that. 29% of Google employees are women has to do with women's choices. I am completely convinced of that. I think it has nothing to do with prejudice. Yeah, maybe maybe, maybe there's some historical stuff there. I I don't know. Now, but at a minimum today, I would I would I am inclined to agree okay, with you. Okay, so there's there's just you can say that those choices are made for cultural reasons. Okay, mm-hmm. that women are, you know, acculturated to believe these certain certain jobs are fun or interesting and others are not, okay? When you get into biology, when you make biological claims about why they make those choices, then you're really 
problematic, as they say, and you're saying you're announcing to other people who you might have power over that it is less likely for you to be able to do this job. I am going, you are prejudiced. Yeah, you're no, announcing I, that you are prejudiced. That's prejudging I think, again. I, I think that's a whole a, class of people. But I think that's a misrepresentation of what he wrote. What he said is we should be judging people as individuals. Well, he's citing and he's citing he's testosterone citing, levels. He is, is he not? He is. Yes, yeah, and he's biological. citing those. But no, he's citing those things to point out that there are differences between these groups in terms of their average preferences, and some of those differences have something to do potentially with brain development when fetuses are exposed to testosterone in the room and mm -hmm. the womb different levels of testosterone it's the drinking now girl children that are exposed to higher levels of testosterone share some of the same sort of interests as um as boys in terms of the type of toys that they play with toys that are a bit more mechanical look whether or not we believe this or or think this is true i think is it's fine. We can dispute it all we like. All he did was cite some studies that suggested that. And if he's wrong about it, you know, perhaps he's wrong. It's certainly not. These are not monstrous views. These are things that that one can and in my estimation should be permitted I, I to would, study. I would say that the one thing that makes me sort of soften, you know, my pretty... I guess pretty harsh criticism of yeah. this kid is that if this was actually on a channel, a Slack channel in which these diversity initiatives were to be discussed, hmm. I still think it is utterly bizarre that yeah, you would yeah. use this. No, this is a and, stupid thing to do. And, and, you know, put it in a, like a PDF that's nicely formatted yeah. and talk about testosterone levels is, is, is just stupid in almost every possible way. I don't know why anyone would do it. Uh, that said, I mean, there, there is something to his point that there are um, views and uh, opinions uh, that are off limits. Mm -hmm. And he discovered that. And if, if he is indeed, and, I, and again, I don't want to take a side on this because I haven't actually read the memo. I've had a very busy week. But if you read, and, and, but it struck me that it was about, well, let's not, let's not explain this all as, as a result of sexism. And perhaps there's something biological about it. There are lots of people in the field, according to him and according to some stuff that I've read, who do also make this argument. Sure. That is fine. I don't know why you are making it because, you know, I wouldn't want somebody to talk about sort of Charles Murray's Thank theories you. or whatever. That's just what I was thinking if you were, of. If right. you were like some kid who's coding, you know, C++ I for, mean, for uh, you know, Google Hangouts, but, it's just a bizarre thing to but, do. But the, kids, but the kids do. I mean, this is this is the most of the protesters who show up at a Charles Murray um, speech. Most everybody who ready, talks about politics or, doesn't know what they're talking yeah, about. This is true. Yeah, <laughs> so. no, the people the people who are the most upset about this stuff haven't haven't bothered to even try to read the bell curve, which is very hard to do because it's so friggin long. But I'm reminded of and this is this will be my my perhaps last last words, um, my last will and testament, perhaps. But um, a conversation I had with John McWhorter. Um, cause we're, we're homies and we're just hanging out, like eating, <laughs> eating dinner and just talking. He told and you not to tell him. We were talking about, uh, no, he didn't, he didn't say that because we're best friends. It's fine. Um, <laughs> we were talking about his piece that he wrote, um, uh, that was published at national review about race and IQ, which I don't know if we talked about it here, but the, the short version is not John's fan. perspective in that piece was that there's no good reason to talk about race and IQ, to study this because there's no good that can come of it. And it's the sort of thing that is likely to lead to all sorts of uh, pernicious things. Like whether or not it's true doesn't matter. We shouldn't study this matter. And I think in like manner, what 
some people are upset about when they say perpetuating what he was fired for, the, the specific charge there is perpetuating gender stereotypes. Citing research that someone is doing that may not be popular with certain folks, maybe we call that perpetuating gender stereotypes. I don't know. But I think there's something about sectioning off areas of academic research and saying that's out of bounds that anyone who does that is problematic where you create a space yeah. and the only people who are willing to talk about it are the dangerous sorts that invent like Pizzagate. When I went looking for the memo, mm -hmm. like that's where I found it. The guy who invented yeah. Pizzagate is the one who is entrusted with the secret knowledge. He's the one who has the PDF on his website. It's problematic. You, you actually create a situation where if it's true, if it looks like it's true, it really does look like, you know, they're trying to keep it from you. And the only one who's telling you the truth are the uh, Alex Joneses of the world. I agree with you on that. And I think, and that's why I disagree with McWhorter on this. I think we should study everything. Study okay? it all. But here's the thing. Yeah. If you own a company and even, even, even Charles Murray believes this, yeah, he yeah. believes that there are African-Americans, people of African descent out there who are very good at engineering. He mm -hmm. does, he even, he, even he believes that, though he believes that their IQ on average is lower in those fields. Okay. Oh. If you want to attract the best people, the best engineers in the world, you're going to need to fire anyone who says things like there are biological differences between genders and races having to do with the ability to do engineering. Uh -huh. Right? I mean, I, it's I just, you. okay. You you it, mean you might listen, you might have to fire a bunch of people who have not opinions and perspectives that are not popular. Not morally. I'm saying it's just it's a good business decision, right? I hear you. Okay. Good. Yeah, I yeah. the one the one thing that that I wonder about this is that I I don't like the the kind of you know, airiness of that phrase of, a, of perpetuating gender stereotypes, because that can be in a lot of things. And, sure and it, the one thing it does worry about is it opens the cans of worms. I mean, if you're in sitting at the Google cafeteria or something and you say men are faster runners than women. Right. If you look, it's true. Right. It's offensive. That, is, no, it's offensive that, that you said that. Is that a perpetuating? Well, it's offensive that you said that. Ask, I don't know. Ask John McEnroe exactly. about this. Exactly. McEnroe. Well, Serena, we had we Serena talked Williams. To, yeah. We, we, we talked, talked about, about this on the about podcast, yeah, and right, it was right. like you know, I went back and we talked about this on the podcast and repeat myself. But we we I went back to when that had been discussed to see. I mean, I play tennis a little bit, but I'm not, you know, I, don't, I can't judge if the top 700 players in the world, but if there are a, a oh. lot of people who really do know this stuff say, yeah, he's kind of right. Oh, there's no question. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, it is, it, mean, if you were to say that at, you know, if that makes an argument here about presuming that the, that the guy who wrote this memo is actually saying this, mm -hmm. that, you know, this stuff's bad business. Do you want to work there as a woman? If it, all, all that's, this applies perfectly in that situation. Mm -hmm. But if you are going to this whole thing about, you know, perpetuating gender stereotypes, if you're going to have that argument, because you saw it on John Oliver last night or something in the Google cafeteria about if a man, uh, if Serena Williams can beat any of the top 700 men in the world, and someone overhears this in a Lena Dunham type way <laughs> and then goes and, and reports you to HR for perpetuating gender stereotypes, do you get fired? I mean, that's a bad, I, that's a different kind of thing. Throwing this stuff out on the Slack channel and talking about testosterone, I, either way, it, as I've said repeatedly, bad move. Fat, do you, uh, have you seen an idiot uh, write anything that you <laughs> want to, uh, that you want to flag? Never. I can't think of it. 
anything in my life. Okay. Um, gosh, boy, so much to choose from. Yeah. I, I, you know, I just quickly, I find Twitter so depressing and it just, it's just mm-hmm. really makes me unhappy in the last, especially the last six months to a year. Hmm. I used to have fun on there and sometimes get depressed and angry. And now I cannot look at it without being Do you still tweet? Angry. You know, sure. Less, I mean, but I, I tweet a lot less now. I do. I do less reading of tweets. Yeah, you know, me too. I, yeah. So it's yeah. just, it's rough out there. And so I don't even know how stupid things are, how many idiots there are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, the same thing um, is that I am, uh, I tweet a lot less now and I feel some obligation to not close it down. Uh, because you have some followers and stuff, sure. and you know, yeah. I don't know, I don't know why I feel that way, but I don't, don't, I just don't like it so much anymore. It's so bad. It's just so toxic. It is. I mean, well, I'm, especially Trump is just the reactions to Trump. You know, is just, the, just it, made. It's like the, the virtu- Walking Dead. The, I mean, the virtue, the virtue signaling Olympics too. Oh, it's like who can retweet the stupidity? Like he's he's a moron. He tweets moronic things. I'm kind of over it. It's like I, I tried to explain to my daughter the other day. She made a very funny joke. She's six years old. And she kids don't understand the diminishing returns on repeating. Try to explain this to a child. Why is the joke not funny if I just say it again two minutes later or two seconds later? I'm like, I don't know. It just isn't. <laughs> so all of you retweeting Donald Trump, it's like my six-year-old telling the same joke within a span of 10 seconds. I, like, I don't... Actually, I, I was going to say that Trump's tweets are the only thing I like on Twitter. I mean, those make me happy because well, they're, they're so hilarious. They're, they're, <laughs> sometimes. I mean, sometimes they're... they're Almost. I, all, well, yeah. The old, <laughs> except, I mean, except when he's talking about killing people and deporting yeah. people and stuff. But yeah. yeah okay. All that yes. stuff. Yeah. Except for that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So some idiot wrote this. Uh, uh, Thad uh, is going to nominate uh, an app, <laughs> um, the Twitter app, and I'm going to second it because we because we were nice to each other today, uh, and it wasn't uh, constructed, it wasn't previously uh, uh, planned, uh, and sometimes that th- sort of thing happens. Well, I'm, I'm happy. For, I, I feel I I'm fear that uh, I fear that Thad's uh, 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 disappointed. No, I don't think that is disappointing at all. No. I, I don't. I'm trying to figure out what I should feel right now about this. I don't know. <laughs> should yeah. I be happy? Yeah. I, it's, it's one of those moments in life. I'm trying to figure out how I should feel yeah. right now. It's like I, 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 I turned on. I, Am I <laughs> disgusted? I'm yeah, it's like off. when you watch gay porn, right? Oh no, wait. That's, <laughs> oh. I meant no. I you. No, there's you there's do. literally no. Uh, anyway, I'll just keep going. Let's, yeah, let's just, just close this out. Just stop. Uh, well, thanks a bunch for being here, <laughs> gentlemen. Um, I don't know how we're going to cut this out and distribute it. Maybe just one no. massive yes. podcast. The people can't. want it. You can't. Probably not. People, you can't. No, we're going to. It's podcasts. It's yeah. long form. They love this. Okay. They can't well, get enough uh, of us. We, uh, we had a great time. Thanks a bunch. Bye. Bye. Peace. We, we know of new methods of attack. Broken heart.